podcast this week, we have an interview with the right man for the job of directing Cyrano, Joe Wright. Plus, we have a big old slice of licorice pizza with Paul Thomas Anderson. And, hello, I've waited here for you ever long. There goes my hero. Watch him as he goes. It's only Dave Grohl. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I just lost my shit. (laughs) I've lost my shit in the intro. That's not good. Has anyone seen my shit? I've lost it. Dave Grohl on the podcast. Squee! I hope it happens now. Yeah, I was going to say, I haven't done the interview yet. Yes, or indeed finished the intro, so shut the fuck up. <laughs> All that and more on the movie podcast that is coming to you from a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Squee! Squee, indeed. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. We have, we've recorded the Empire Podcast in some strange places over the 10 years we've been running. We've recorded the Empire Podcast in our dull, grey, depressing pod booth. Mm. We have. Uh, whether it was just off Shaftesbury Avenue, near Forbidden Planet, or and then when we moved offices, the grey, depressing pod booth came with us to our current abode in Camden since COVID hit, although apparently that's no longer a thing. Thanks, <laughs> Boris Johnson. <laughs> since COVID hit, uh, you know, we've obviously done a lot on, on Zoom, mm-hmm. a lot on Squadcast. We've recorded, we've recorded in America. We've recorded in England, and yet we've never recorded in space. <laughs> Actual outer space. <laughs> and yet here we are, folks. Uh, this week's Emperor Podcast is recorded. To- <laughs> this week's Emperor Podcast is being recorded <laughs> in space. Well, not really in space. Space is just outside here, but we're re- recording this in our cabin mm-hmm. on the one of the decks of the good ship Halcyon. Halcyon, yeah, the Galactic yeah. Star Cruiser. The Galactic, right, the Galactic Star Galactic Cruiser, Star. Halcyon, uh, because I'm joined by my two colleagues of such lethal cunning. Geek Queen Helen O'Hara is here. Hello! <laughs> uh, she's in a separate room, by the way, in case I mean, you're I'm, in case I'm you're in fan fiction. Right now, but I'm, yeah, I'm sleeping in another room. Okay, yes, yes. She's here right now. She hasn't zoomed in, <laughs> but she's sleeping in another room. So stop all the fan fiction, folks. Uh, and we are, regrettably... <laughs> We've gone to space, but he still managed to track us down. The GPFN, the great big fucking nerd, James Dyer, is also here. Hello, James. Hello, and I, in fact, am staying in this room with you, although you have got the main bed and I'm sleeping in the child's bunk. (laughs) 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 One of the two bunk beds that are in this room that I just about fit into with my head touching one end and my feet touching the other. Yes, but they're like... They're Star Wars. They're quite cool, yeah. They're Star Wars moments. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) To be clear, we're not complaining. And they come with a little sleeping pouch, like a little, which which is like a space sleeping bag. But uh, it comes a little sleeping pouch, not Zardoz style. Just again for the fan fiction writers. Nothing like that. No, James is not walking around in a in a red onesie, a sci-fi mankini. Yes, he's not. He's not doing that. Uh, So this pouch, and we'll explain why we're here and what we're doing in a second. But this pouch, Jimbo, that you're sleeping in yes. at the moment, is it... Because uh, I always imagine that Chewbacca, my favourite Star Wars character of all time, I, I always imagine that he is akin to a marsupial. So he has a pouch that you could you could sleep in. Sometimes I dream of climbing into Chewbacca's pouch, curling up, 
putting my thumb in my mouth and uh, and having a good old doze. This wow, has gone this in, is in a, an unexpected direction. A lot of information that I'm not sure I needed. I, what I'm disappointed at is that the little pouch is nice, but I wanted one of those torn, torn sleeping bags. You know the ones where you yeah. can climb it? That's that's pretty cool. I'd like uh, one of those. Okay, but we should explain what the heck is going on for the many, many people who will be absolutely Yeah, we had curious. enough COVID, so we've moved to space. What what planet are we in orbit around at the moment? Uh, you know? Mark, can I even say? I'm not even sure. I'm, I, I don't want to say because uh, I'll explain what we're doing first. Okay. All right. Okay. okay. Um, don't worry, folks. This is not the entire podcast the entire podcast is not us banging on about the fact that we're sleeping um that james is watching me sleep <laughs> from the top bunk i'm you know peacefully asleep and he's going full paranormal activity yep. standing over me at three in the morning that's not happening uh what i will say is that we we're at the galactic star cruiser mm. in disney world in orlando florida so we're not really in space we're not what? really off planet what Sorry, Helen. Sorry to ruin the illusion. Came on a, we came on a, like, a, we got on board a ship and then we came up to the other ship. It's true, we did. That ship, Helen, I don't want to have to break it to you like this. That was a bus that had been decked out to what? look like that, a spaceship. Oh, man. Uh, so basically what's happened is Lucasfilm invited me to sample the delights of the Galactic Star Cruiser, which is their new... It's an immersive Star Wars hotel cruise experience. Slash event. Yeah. Slash... In- infotainment, <laughs> edutainment, whatever you want to call it, uh, out here at Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. James is here, Helen is here, and we're here at the Galactic Star Cruiser. And yeah. it's completely and utterly mental. It is, it is completely like it is delightful. I'm so I was going around with just the biggest smile on my face, um, you know, telling telling my family about this yesterday. It's mad. All the pictures have been embargoed. By the time you're listening to this, they'll probably be up on our social accounts, some of them anyway. Yeah. Not spoilery stuff, but like No, there are the other lots of influencers on. running around here. Yeah. Uh, I identified one of them today. Everything. Filming everything. Because it, it, so it's a really interesting experience. So the idea is that you're essentially on a cruise ship in space yeah. so the second you enter this thing the galactic star cruiser in and i'm not going to tread into spoiler territory don't worry but you know you know the everything is self-contained so you're in this thing for the best part of two days i would say uh there is a there is a, a an element in fact the entire second day where you can get outside you can go to the galaxy's edge star wars theme park and you can go on the ride of the resistance and smugglers run and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff so you, you do get outside in case you're going a bit stir crazy which is good because you know James was clawing through the walls this morning at 3am uh, a lot of stuff happened at 3am you watched me sleep yeah. claw through the walls it was very interesting uh, but you, you get inside and then there's you know there's, there's lots of stuff to do here but also there's an idea that there are characters who mm-hmm. are playing members of the crew everyone's in character Everyone, and they never ever break character. never break we've tried to make yeah. them break they do not break uh and it's been really interesting watching that sort of stuff happen and there's a there's a story going on over the course of the two days and you can participate in that story if you want and you can you can you can let it fly by if you yeah. want and uh, i should point out that that chris got into this <laughs> to an extent that i was somewhat uncomfortable with there was a point where we walked into engineering uh and chris declared loudly to four bewildered engineers that he was representing the first order and conducted an impromptu inspection which they all just went along with and seemed very very sort of cowed by and i just died quietly in a corner but it was it was very entertaining <laughs> i've just loved the whole experiential thing more than the you know immersive mm. stuff it's like a 2 day so, yeah. cinema yeah, with, it with kind two of sleepovers. But like, so I'm, you mm. know, I'm sort of like lying on my bed, looking out the window at planets going past, and yeah. then occasionally we'll jump into hyperspace for a bit, and the window goes all hyperspacey, and then we're at a different planet going past, and yeah. it's 
That's kind of magic. Yeah, there's a view screen. That is the only window type thing, which looks out. No, over it's a window. A I mean, I don't yeah, okay. understand why I have to explain. Uh, sure, all this it's stuff. a window that looks out over space, and there's a planet and some asteroids. Yeah. And, and there's a yeah. droid you know. that you can call up from your wall console. Yes. and have a little conversations with the droid, and and that, and so I'm I'm just living out all my nerd fantasies at once. Mm-hmm. I also quite like the fact that when you go to, you, there's like a shuttle, a shuttle comes and it takes you to, to Galaxy's Edge. It's a bus, James. It, it's a shuttle. It's a bus. space shuttle, Chris. It's a Don't be ridiculous. Bus. It's a Buses would not work shuttle. in space, despite yeah. what Fast and Furious would tell us. Um, <laughs> but uh, you go down there and they, you wear a little badge, like a little, like a communicator from Star Trek, but a little badge to show that you're from the ship. Uh, and when you are wearing the badge, the people in Galaxy's Edge treat you slightly differently and not like, oh, you've paid lots of money to be on this thing. We will give yes. you what you like. And not like quick hand jobs. <laughs> you no. Know, it's not like but, that at all. But, but like they, they role play with you a lot more. Like there are there are stories that they play out with you. Yes, which but is not like cool. a Tory MP role play. There's no sexuals involved. There's, not, there's no sexual component to this whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, there could be for the right price. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I hadn't been to Galaxy's Edge before, so that was also completely delightful for yeah. me, and I was very excited. I had, I, yeah, I hadn't been either. James, of course, had been, and he was Mr. Jaded and cynical, going around, going, "Oh, yawn, look at that! <laughs> it's a life-size oh, Millennium yawn. Falcon." There's Poe Dameron coming. To to save the day. Who cares? Oh, what is that? An X-wing. Oh, I've seen that before. <laughs> but it was uh, it was good stuff. It was good stuff. And uh, yeah, I've 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 enjoyed it. There are, there are, you know there are quibbles. I would say uh, it's a two day experience, and you're largely in this hotel. And the hotel by design is is windowless. And mm-hmm. so if you do feel you know, you might feel a little bit hemmed in, a little bit claustrophobic. Uh, and some of the some of the offence might err on the side of the kitty. I mean, for kids, I, my mind would have been so blown yeah. by this, I can't yeah. even tell you. I've seen, yeah, the, the expression on kids' face. I mean, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not a dad, uh, in parentheses, yet. Um, but, yeah, it, 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 you know, thinking about <clears throat> one day bringing my, my child or children here would be would be a hell of a thing. Yeah. Mm. It yeah. feels like, to me, like it's more geared towards the kind of casual Star Wars fan family than like the hardcore nerddom do you think yeah well because i think like there's the there's the nerd element like you'd be excited by it but i think the, because it goes on for a while and because of the activities it's better suited to like families I mean, with the, kids the nerds i've seen have been having the time of their lives I that is like. also true and we uh, way, say, we one, haven't been in costume the whole time some people have been and some yeah. i'm dressed head amazing. to toe in black helen i am a hundred percent in my first order uniform what are you talking about you're I mean, first order casual yeah first this order is casual. this is first order loungewear <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> this man couldn't give two hucks about what he wears yeah i, I honestly you know when I when I arrived, I was like, "Oh man, I've never cosplayed in my life, but I feel like this might be the place to cosplay because uh, everyone is dressed up and looks really, really cool." But if I'm ever lucky enough to come back here one day, and who knows, I probably won't be. I'll maybe go full full Chewbacca yeah. with my pouch that you can crawl up inside and sleep in. I think I would want to do a bit more if I came back, but it's been I'm like yeah. I just I'm having a very nice time. It's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. But is it enough fun to justify the outlay? Hi, folks. Chris just jumping in here now after the fact. I have landed. I'm in London. I'm putting the podcast together in my little home office here. And I have one quick note on the Galactic Star Cruiser experience. Because it has taken me so long to edit this week's podcast, apologies for the lateness. It has been a very complicated one. I'm putting it up after the embargo for reviews of the Galactic Star Cruiser have broken. And I've seen that a lot of people are now asking two things online. How much does it cost and is it worth it? Well, I'm going to be writing a more in-depth piece slash review, which will go up on the Empire website, empireonline.com. 
next week. But for now, just a couple of quick tidbits. All in all, the experience starts at around $5,000 per cabin. It goes up depending on the number of people, adults and children that you have in the cabin. Cabins can seat and sleep around five people. There are one bedroom options, two bedroom options. Uh, James and I and Helen, were, we were in the standard cabin, which has a queen bed. It also has two bunk beds and a pull down sofa, which we didn't use. The $5,000, that is a lot of money right up front. Not going to hide it. That is a lot of money. And that includes all the food, all the drink, and all the experiences you're going to get there, including things like the lightsaber training and the admission to Galaxy's Edge on day two. But it does not include flights. And I know a lot of people will draw the line the minute they hear that it costs that much. They will not spend that much money on what is essentially a two-day experience. Would I recommend it? Having had the experience, would I look you in the eye or speak into your ear and tell you that it is worth it. It is worth at least $5,000 of your money. Well, with something like this, there's no hard yes or no answer. The experience itself, I had a blast. But at times, it was a little samey. And the Halcyon, because of the lack of windows, could feel a little small. Even a day away from the sunshine can have you craving either one or two suns. But at the same time, I've always been quite cynical about things like this, these immersive experiences, and but I found myself really getting into it. And I thought it was undeniably excited to be part of something so immersive with surprises and unexpected characters that genuinely make you feel like you're part of Star Wars. So I would say, if you are a hardcore fan, although some hardcore fans might feel it skews a little young, then I would say it's worth it. If you are a family, if you are, uh, if your parents, you have a young child or young children, and they are massive Star Wars fans, seeing Galactic Star Cruiser through their eyes was a real eye opener. The kids were having a great time. My wife and I, not to pull the curtain back too much and things, but my wife and I are about to become parents. And one of the overriding thoughts I had during the Galactic Star Cruiser experience was how much I wanted one day to be able to bring them to. Disney World and to experience that and to experience Disney World as a whole and to experience Universal Studios and, and all that jazz. And would I spend my own money? Yes. Although my wife might not entirely agree or indeed let me do it. Would I specifically spend that much money on a two-day experience like the Galactic Star Cruiser? Probably not, despite the fact that I had an incredible time. But would I spend it as part of a larger one week, even two week holiday in Orlando, that once in a lifetime holiday you hear so much about, then yes, I would. But it is a lot of money. And whichever way you slice it, whether you want to go to this or whether you've absolutely turned your nose up at it, I'm going to tell you one immutable truth of this or any of the galaxy, my friends. Blue milk is disgusting. But that's enough for me. If you want to hear more, if you want to read more about my, my experience and my findings, check out the website next week. I'll tweet the link. Now back to me and James and Helen and on with the rest of the show. Anyway, should we have a guest? Yes, let's. Dave Grohl was meant to happen on Saturday in person in London for Studio 666, which is the Foo Fighters horror comedy, which is coming out, well, today, by the time you're listening to this. Uh, but then Storm Eunice had other ideas, and so he didn't even fly to England. So Dave Grohl didn't happen in person. He is going to be happening <laughs> tomorrow by the time you're listening to this two days ago. It's very, very confusing. We're recording this on Tuesday. We don't usually record the podcast this this soon, but uh, Helen's going away. James is 
staring at me in a strange way. Uh, and I don't know well, if there anything earth shattering happens in terms of movie news. We'll do a little insert and we'll we'll drop it in. So that's what's going to happen. But uh, that hasn't happened yet. Paul Thomas Anderson hasn't happened yet. That's meant to happen on Thursday. But Joe Wright has happened. And in fact, it happened a couple of months ago. And Joe Wright, of course, we all know Joe Wright. Yeah. Amazing director. Great one. Atonement. Yep. Pride of Prejudice. Love it. Hannah. Yep. Name of some other ones. Uh, the one was Robert Downey Jr. and Jamie Foxx. The Soloist. That's the one I thought I was thinking of. Just James. Thing. Now you, you you can play a fun game of The Price is Right with the W. Can you name? And I'm actually not Did so you do sure Anna you Karenina? You motherfucker. Whoa. Yes, he did. He pulled it out of the bag. Yes, come on. He pulled it out of the bag. Oh my God, I did not expect that at all. Uh, anyway, Joe Wright, he is one of our best directors. Uh, one of the top two English directors called Wright, I would say. Wow, I mean, big, big, big words, he's, but yeah. He's, he's absolutely up there. Uh, his latest film, as you heard last week when we interviewed Peter Dinklage, is Cyrano, which is a retelling of the classic, yes, I'm doing the same joke, Steve Martin movie Roxanne and starring Mr. Peter Dinklage and Hayley Bennett and Ben Mendelsohn and all that jazz. And Hannah Flint interviewed Peter Dinklage last week and she has also interviewed Joe Wright. This happened before Christmas. I haven't heard the interview back, but if it's anything like the Peter Dinklage interview, then there'll be some sort of festive references. So there you go. Just setting the scene for you. Here we go. Joe Wright on the Emperor podcast, not in a Star Wars hotel. Enjoy. Hey, Joe. Hello. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I just spoke to Peter, so I'm feeling absolutely great. <laughs> oh, okay, good. He'll do that for a person. Like your Christmas tree. It's so tacky, isn't it? I love yeah, it. it's really fucking tacky and it's really awful. great. And you've got a Christmas jumper on as well. Yes, it's the festive season. <laughs> it is. You're, you're doing it and I appreciate it. Well, maybe that I should start off then. What is your favourite Christmas movie? Uh, it's a wonderful <laughs> life it's got to be oh i do love that one it's got to be a wonderful it's a wonderful life um it's got everything uh but it's especially got jimmy stewart and it's magical realism and it has um you know concerns and hope and uh it's a it's a beautiful movie yeah, I always think it's funny. People don't really like. Wait a sec, this is a dark film. It's like, yeah, yeah, dudes, <laughs> yeah it's a that? really dark film. You know, <laughs> I mean, you have to get through the darkness to the light on the other side. Exactly, exactly. Now, Joe, um, I have long been a fan of your work. I actually, at university, I wrote an essay uh, on Pride and Prejudice, politeness Did you? theory in Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. I love what that goddamn on, film. On, on well, Pride it was politeness theory. And it was I'm about, it, you kind of compare, it's a dramatic discourse module. And I kind of compare the two scenes, the one where Darcy declares his lover in the rain. Yeah. And it's like, goes tits up. Yeah, <laughs> and then, yeah, and then yeah. the later one, when they meet at Pemberley, and it's all oh. like, oh. And it's just like, yeah, did a bit of oh, linguistic analysis. So, oh. so there you oh. go. I don't have a copy of this that I can email you. Apologies. But, um, I just think you just you you really get how to do a period drama and I love it. And I think you I suppose for you, you've done it quite consistently. What is it about classic literature that you is so appealing to you to tell it on screen in a way that feels quite fresh? It's not that I make them in opposition to contemporary drama, but I find the contemporary world really confusing. And I can't find 
a way through it often. And so I use period drama, uh, which to me is actually a kind of fantasy filmmaking mm-hmm. um, as uh, a medium through which I'm able to see myself and those around me more clearly given that kind of distance. Um, uh, I think it's something around that. I mean, I love history um, uh, and I love, but what I really love is, 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 is seeing, finding the similarities between us um, and our ancestors uh, rather than the differences, you know. Um, uh, that, that kind of seems to help me somehow. And it's been, a, you know, it's been a thing because because period dramas are often seen as being somehow um, uh, reactionary, and um, and that troubles me because I'm not a particularly reactionary guy. You know, I mm. I, I believe in. Um, well, I believe, let's just say I believe the things I believe in and they aren't necessarily reactionary politics. Um, uh, so what I've tried to do is subvert the, um, the genre in any way I can to make it um, relevant and, and uh, articulate of my own uh, emotional, spiritual and political experience oftentimes these classics they're timeless so they get adapted quite frequently so you're kind of also going about going against other versions of it to make yours feel I suppose something different but also true so I suppose you know have you when you I think you said you were really you wanted to do this for a very long time but what were the kind of Cyrano's that I suppose that you first took you on board that you were like I would love this story and I kind of want to do my own version of it in my own way well, the first version I saw was when I was like, you know, fat, spotty teenager feeling completely uh, unlovable. I didn't even like myself, so I couldn't see why other people should like me. And then I saw the Gerard Dapadu version um, and it spoke to me. You know, it, it, I, I related to him um, and his feelings of being other and different. Um, and, uh, and then, but I, I, I couldn't see any reason of remaking it, you know, um, it had been done until I saw Pete Dinklage play the role, um, in a tiny workshop production in Chester, Connecticut. Um, and it, and it all made sense to me and suddenly his otherness became vital and um and important and relevant and authentic as well i love the kismet of that you were kind of out there to see Haley. it's like wait a sec wait a sec it's it's put us together (laughs) yeah i had to ask Haley whether i could you know for her permission and um and she gave me her permission and then as I, long as i uh, get the lead role <laughs> as long as you know but i couldn't i mean to be honest with you it was the, it was seeing Pete and Haley play those roles together mm. um and the the kind of wonderful contrast and juxtaposition um and uh, and delight in seeing them love each other fall in love um 
Uh, and they're both kind of characters, and Christian too. They're all kind of characters who don't quite fit right in their bodies, you know. Mm. Um, Roxanne, at least as Haley played her, didn't feel right as a kind of woman of that time. Um, and so they all felt had a lot of trophies. She's treated like this trophy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is to underestimate her, you know, mm. which is to vastly underestimate her. As a lot of female actors are, you know, underestimated because they happen to be pretty, you know. Yeah. It's not just a pretty face. It, it's not just a pretty <laughs> face, love. Uh, but it's difficult, you know, because, you know, when it, I remember it was also what helped them get to where they are as well. So mm. they don't want to, you know, and they're always somehow told to be grateful as well. You yeah. Know? You're yeah. lucky to be here. Yeah, um, that is the most annoying thing you ever hear because it's like you're replaceable. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. Bore off. Anyway, enough of that nonsense. Yeah. Um, I, I think what's interesting is, I suppose this is one of the most famous earliest forms of catfishing. So I, I think, especially for like the for, for doing a modern story, how how do you still make it sympathetic so that you've got the audience on the side? of these characters, especially when, you know, <laughs> nowadays it's like, hold on a second. Yeah, they're all, but they're all lying to each other. Do you know what I mean? I mean, that's mm. the truth of it, is that there are no, and I try to do this in all my films, that people are neither good nor bad. You know, they're just complicated. They're all flawed. Um, but therefore, they're all worthy of compassion. We're all worthy of compassion. And so I try to create... I try to generate compassion in my movies, you know, mm. um, uh, for our fellow human beings. And um, even when they are behaving appallingly, you know, it's often fear that makes people behave badly. Mm. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I don't really, I don't really stick with this whole kind of your characters have to be sympathetic all the time. And I, um, Sometimes I like my characters to be completely unsympathetic uh, because that's the mess of life. You know, mm. it's not tidy. Um, uh, I'm, you know, uh, and that's my experience of life, you know. Um, so, so that's what I try to try to express. And I think compared to some of your previous like period dramas, and I suppose the, the genre in general, that's like, it's always, it's always quite whitewashed, but this is obviously far more diverse. So I suppose, you know, doing that, when did you get to that realization that actually, again, a fantasy world, but also the past, that it didn't have to just be the specific way that I've been told this is what the past looked like? It's interesting that, you know, when I did, um, I remember when I, if we're talking about race, which I think is, is, yeah. is what we're talking about, um, when I did uh, the Charles II, The Power and the Passion, which was the last ever thing I did for TV back in, oh my God. 2002 wow. um uh and i tried to cast sophie okonedo uh in the role of the king's mistress um and was told that the the bbc audience or the bbc one audience weren't ready for that um uh it's amazing how we've moved on you know uh now at that time i wasn't powerful enough or strong enough necessarily to to fight that difference um and so then when I did atonement, I made sure that the, you know, the black soldiers that served in the British army were represented. Um, uh, and then, you know, when I did 
um, Darkest Hour, I made sure that, you know, the uh, Caribbean uh, um, community was represented, even in a small way. But, a, but, a, but someone said to me at the time, well, there weren't any black people in Britain in 1941. Um, and it was like, eh, they've actually, you know, mm. been here since the 1600s. It's true, though, that by making this a kind of fantasy of a period rather than um, uh, an accurate period description or um, uh, of like the 1640s when the original play is set, or uh, I could I could bring in a more diverse cast or allow uh, be open to a more diverse mm. cast. I guess is the point. We but met it's also of accurate because Italy actually back in the day i mean you had the moors perfectly north africa so there would have been a lot of black people around that time i think there's like a famous italian it was like mixed race uh kind of duke or something or viscount yeah he was in venice in the 1500s um uh and um and uh yeah so there's a long long history of you know um uh african people in europe and in way back to the renaissance and 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 before so it is it's important to kind of acknowledge that. What I find really interesting is in my time, how it's changed from, you know, when 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 I was casting the, Charles II, for instance, mm-hmm. it was all about colorblind casting. Yeah. Um, in the theater, you'd have, you know, the RSC possibly, you'd have, you know, um, uh, a, a, a black actor playing Hamlet or, you know, and there was never a reference to the racial heritage. And now that's changed and it's moved forward. And now actually uh, it's important to reference uh, racial heritage uh, rather than pretend it doesn't exist. And and so um, it's exciting to see how culturally we're changing and developing and, and let's face it, growing up. Yeah. Color conscious casting is the way forward. Yeah. Also, it's like you just get the best people. Now you can actually get the best people for the role rather than doing the oh, it's the, we've got to get to what these ideas of what these words should look like. Yeah, but, um, absolutely. I feel this year I love, I love musicals. <laughs> there have been so many out this year. Yeah. I mean, I suppose for you, what what were your, I suppose, reference points in in sense of creating? Because I think a movie musical obviously is a totally different kind of it, like, it's a totally yeah. different thing compared to a stage stuff. So I suppose what were you kind of, I suppose, not references, but kind of inspired by and creating it, creating this dance numbers, creating, I suppose, that the moments of fantasy coming through on the reflections? I'm not that into musicals. How dare you, sir? <laughs> well, I like, I like the older ones. Do you know what I mean? I like the 50s and the 40s and the 30s musical. I'm just not into, like, the 80s musicals, you know? Right. So, um, so I had to kind of get beyond that. Um, my favorite musical ever is probably Cabaret. Um, I love the Bob Fosse stuff with like all that jazz. And, you know, that feels, it feels like it's not just about beauty. It feels about edginess as well. It, it's a, it's a manner of expression that is somehow uh, representative of how messy I feel inside, you know, um, uh, I guess I also love, you know, uh, Dancer in the Dark and 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 those kind of musicals. Um, uh, so that's all very exciting to me, but I didn't want to kind of emulate any of them. Um, 
and the music that we're we're working with you know the national music is very kind of um internal and contemplative it's not big declamatory numbers i was i was i was doing the washing up one day at home and uh, had the radio on and bowie's starman came on and i started singing along and i thought well that's that's what I'd like the musical numbers to be like. It's as mm. easy and natural as singing along to the radio. Yeah. Um, uh, and so to that end, all of the music was, uh, all of the singing rather was recorded live on set. Um, and, and we tried to create a kind of, yeah, an intimate atmosphere to the songs that moved naturally from speaking to singing and back again. I know, I love it. I think it's always got a, musicals should feel like this natural extensions of, of the word, spoken words and that your feelings exactly. are just so much that you can't, you need to break into song yeah. to kind of exhibit I mean, that. The thing with the, with the original Edmund Rostand play is that he has these very long monologues, um, which wouldn't work on film for a contemporary audience, I don't think. Um, so he has these very long monologues and it was those monologues that we sort of chose to express in song form rather than in spoken form. I suppose then my final thing, I mean, again, I love what you do of these classic literature adaptations. Are there anything that's anything kind of ones that are on your list that you're eager, eager to bring to life? Jeanette Winterson, but I won't say which one. <gasps> Excuse me while I go Google every single one. I don't try to work out. <laughs> no, but um, thank you so much. This was so much fun and, and, and so beautiful. And letters definitely made me cry. <laughs> Oh, it was just good. so moving. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for being thank on the Empire Podcast. Thank you very much. I hope I didn't waffle on too much. Oh, we love a waffle. All right, Because then I don't waffle. If you waffle, right. then it's better. And I'm just All like, right. Ugh. All right, good. Yeah. All right. <laughs> thank you so much. Happy See Christmas. Later. Happy See Christmas. Ya. See you later. Bye. Okay, so that was Joe Wright, and we will be talking about Cyrano. Well, that's to be more accurate. Helen will be talking about Cyrano later on <laughs> in the show. Uh, for now, it is time to talk about this week's listener question. Here's a good one. I think this ties in very nicely to our, <laughs> our current situation. So this comes from at Isaac Harris, at LVWHarris96 on Twitter. Most bizarre experience interviewing someone. He says for the show, but I'm going to expand it because a lot of the time we just interview people on Zoom or they come to the studio or we go to a hotel room or somewhere else. Mm. But by and large, bizarre experiences interviewing for the podcast. You know, we've been to Ian McKellen's house to record a podcast interview with Ian McKellen, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, and it was Nick and myself, I think. And we were shown into his drawing room, I want to say. He has a very, very lovely house. Many, many stories. Well, not many, many stories, but about three or four stories. I'm not going to say exactly where, uh, but it's in London. And the drawing room was very, was very full of lovely books. Oh. Lots of lovely leather-bound books. And uh, it did smell of rich mahogany. There you go. And because it was his house, he could smoke. Mm. So he smoked during the interview. Mm. Uh, the only other person I've seen smoke during an Empire podcast interview was Lee Child. Ah. Of course, he did. who took advantage of the fact that uh, we were on Zoom, and therefore he was in his own house, and therefore didn't have to worry about uh, you know laws or rules or uh, politeness or etiquette or any of that business, and and lit up. Fair play. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. Um, I mean, I'm trying to think. My, my weirdest ones are probably going to be on set, things like that. You know, I mean, um, 
So like Danny McBride, um, I talked to on set of Your Highness. We were sitting outside the studio in Belfast. It wasn't raining for once. That's weird, just right there. But like he had a severed minotaur penis around his neck. What? You know, that's not what you normally see in podcast interviews and and but that was kind of just actually how it now was. you think now you say that i think Ian mckellen and lee child both had both separate had penises, minotaur penises around, around their neck. necks oh, yeah. i mean it's the coming thing you know that's the that's the wow. new attraction um oh god so uh so yeah that kind of thing is are the ones that that stick out to me i guess have you ever defeated anyone in a weird place like not belfast belfast not a weird place it's not very weird um 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 chris hemsworth on set of extraction no, we were in a unused like fish market i think it was in thailand standing in for bangladesh okay because on set you have to grab interviews by yeah, and large where you can yeah where you so can. We, we we had to stop you know fairly frequently for like bites of gunfire as they as they you know check things on set so it was it was fun all right there you go I interviewed, so the interview, the press junket for Star Trek Nemesis happened in Hyde Park at the Star Trek exhibition. They had recreated a number of the iconic Star Trek sets. And I interviewed Patrick Stewart while he was sitting in the captain's chair on the bridge of the NCC 1701D. And I just, my, all my questions were like, <laughs> it was amazing. That is amazing. It was amazing. That was pretty cool. And what did he say to that question? <laughs> Make it so. Uh, yeah, it was good. It was good. That was exciting. I interviewed uh, for one of the American Pies. I don't know which one. I can't remember. Uh, Alison Halligan and Jason Biggs. And there was a uh, a fire alarm went off and we had to evacuate the building. And so troopers that they were, we continued the interview while being evacuated and just continued talking as we walked down the fire escape. And they were quite game about it. That was pretty good. And you published this interview? Uh, well, it was a text interview. We didn't need the audio, so it was fine, yeah. Uh, so that was uh, that was rather lovely. And then, of course, I did Arnold Schwarzenegger while walking down the red carpet to the premiere of See, that, Unexpendable. Yeah, that's cool. That's yeah. great. Well, literally, he was, he was chatting away while he was signing autographs and stuff. That was pretty fun. Yeah. That's amazing. That's what we, Were you in the car with him, or did you just meet him on the red carpet? In the car, and then came out, and then on the red carpet, we walked down, and then in the cinema, and then and I've told this before, I asked him a question. It was probably really inane, like, why are you so great? Uh, but to answer it, he stopped and turned to me, and he started giving me this really animated answer for about, well, I would say, one to two minutes. But that feels like an eternity mm -hmm. when he's at the entrance of cinema, and he has stopped everyone. Like, everyone is now waiting for him to finish talking so we can go in, and I've never melt, felt more self-conscious. And everyone's taking pictures, and I'm like, oh, please, can we go inside? It's really embarrassing. <laughs> uh, but it was great. Yes, I appreciate the thought you're giving to my answer, but please stop giving it thought. Just stop. Yeah, please, please stop. That's interesting. Yeah, I've interviewed people on the way to red carpets, but uh, and I've interviewed people on red carpets, but I've never been on the other side of the mm. barrier whilst interviewing them, and that's very rare yeah. what happened to James yeah. I remember interviewing uh, Paul King and Simon Farnaby years ago for the, the Bunny and the Bull when we did a Philly blogisode with them and if you haven't seen our, any of our Philly blogisodes um, we discovered this week that the first set of Philly blogisodes we ever did which are video uh, diary entries from the Cannes Film Festival is 15 years old this year which has made me feel really really terribly old but you know, go and check them out they're on our YouTube page and some of them are, are quite good um, anyway we interviewed um, Simon uh, Farnaby and Paul King on the way to the LFF premiere of The Bunny and the Bull in their car. So Sam, our, our friend, a cameraman, was there with the camera thrust in her face and it never met me before. And I was just sticking <laughs> my microphone in their noses and asking really inane questions. And then we followed them out of the car. No, actually, we did interview them on the red carpet because then we followed them out of the car and we shouted them all the way down and all the way oh. through and then tracking them through the, the you know, the, the back passages of whichever Odin it was at the time and then onto the stage. 
And that Amazing. was that was really interesting little thing. That was that was a fun that was a fun thing. I've interviewed a number of people in cars. I don't think for this podcast, it wasn't me, but I'm pretty sure someone from the podcast in the history of the podcast interviewed Jeff Goldblum in a car on the way somewhere. That was interesting. I interviewed MJ Bassett, the director, uh, who most recently directed the last episode of Reacher on Prime Video. We were at Comic Con and I was interviewing her and she had to go and do a panel for I think Silent Hill, this the Silent Hill sequel she directed. And she was like, Okay, let's go. Get in the Walk car. We'll, we'll continue. We'll, we'll continue. But when you're um, talent at Comic Con, you don't just walk from the hotel or wherever you are to One the convention center. You walk to Hall H. Precisely, even though it's two minutes, mm. because you can get caught up with fans and stuff, and you know, might get waylaid. Uh, and so we hopped into a car and then drove through traffic, which took a really, really long time. We could have walked in like literally a tenth of the time it took to get to the convention center. Uh, the entire time, I'm no word of a lie, I was busting for a poo, but I couldn't let on that I was busting for a poo, and I was just like, "Please get to the convention center." please, please, please. I do not want to have to get out of this car and run through the traffic to try and find somewhere. Uh, but it's fine. It was okay. It was okay in the end. And then we drove into the bowels, no pun intended, of the convention center and the interview concluded. She went off to do her panel. I went off to do whatever I was going to do. Um, and but that, was a, that was a ton of fun. And also in Comic-Con, uh, 2000 it would have been 2005 I guess before Fantastic Four came up I found myself on the roof I'm sure I've told this story in the podcast before I only have three stories and I rotate them um, but I found myself on the roof of Comic Con I can't remember why and the Fantastic Four were there and is this a dream? No, no, no. This was, this was, they were all the cast of Fantastic Four were there. Your, your fella, Chris Evans, uh, Johan Griffith, oh and, uh, you know, my girl, Jess Alba, uh, everybody's guy, Michael Chiklis. Yep. I feel like I've left out Johan Griffith from the everybody's, but everyone loves him. I love him. Everyone loves yeah. him. He's great. Uh, and I think it's because I knew Avi Arad. I think it's because I knew Avi Arad and Avi somehow got onto the roof. And then they were about to go do their panel. And I think I was interviewing some of them. And I rode down in the elevator. They were like, come on down, the elevator. And so I rode down in the elevator with the Fantastic Four on their way down to do their panel. Also on the way down the elevator, the late, great Miguel Ferrer was there. You know him. Yes. Mm -hmm. And whilst we were going down the elevator, I turned to him. I never do this. I turned to him and I said, I'm sorry, Miguel. I have to say that your delivery of the line, war. It's fantastic in Hot Shots Part 2. It's one of the greatest line readings in the history of cinema. And he went, thank you very much. That's true. Yeah. It is true. Can I tell you a story about a slightly less happy interview experience? Oh, yes, please. I like those. Um, I was uh, on set of Easy Virtue, which I'm, a film I'm sure we all remember very, very well. Oh, yes. That, who, can, um, who can forget? Uh, Stephen Elliott. Sure. Director, Stephen Elliott. Didn't get to speak Jessica to him that Beale. day, so I don't really remember. Jessica Beale, yes. Yes. And uh, Ben Barnes Correct. and Colin Firth and yes. Chris Scott Thomas. I'm sure there's a Rupert Everett creeping around somewhere. Probably there. is. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I was on set and um, I'd been on set all day and it was now about two o'clock in the afternoon and I had spoken so far to no one at all. And they finally got Ben Barnes and Jessica Beale. So this was at a stately home uh, somewhere in Cambridgeshire, I think. And there was a little sort of cafe gift shop type place. And they brought us into the cafe to sit down and have this chat. So I've been there for approximately five hours at this point, it felt like. And 
um, was delighted, obviously, to be speaking to both of them. They're both lovely people, you know, sort of sat down, did the pleasantries, everything else. Then the cafe staff, who were clearly under pressure to get the place turned around after the lunchtime rush, started stacking chairs. And, you know, that makes a certain amount of noise, especially in a small... Oh, yeah, it's awful. Floor, ...a tiled floor room. Then they started dragging the stacks of chairs across the tiled floor below us, making an unbelievable racket. So I could hear approximately, I would say roughly maybe like 0% of what these two delightful young actors were saying. And <laughs> then um, they got called back to set two and a half minutes after I turned on my recorder. I thought you'd got back to set, go back to your hotel room and realise you hadn't turned the, uh, no, the no, thing No, no, no. I mean, I've done that in the past, but okay. no, not on this occasion. Yes. Um, I had turned it on. They got called back to set two and a half minutes in. I had two and a half minutes of the sound of chairs being dragged across, across the floor mm. with someone mumbling, you know, handsomely but indistinctly in the background. Uh, so, yeah, that was about as annoying, I think, as an interview has ever been for me. Yikes. Well, I remember doing Joe Jabin's for Force Awakens and he was telling me something about Kylo Ren and he was at the airport having finished shooting the film and sort of before finishing editing. And uh, there was a bit where literally he gets interrupted because the security guy just takes the phone off him. <laughs> and, and I literally have to listen through it going through the metal detector as he goes through security and wait for him to pick it up at the other well, end. And it was extraordinary. He picks it up and we carried on the interview. Well, what fun. happens to the sound when a phone goes through the metal detector? That's a good question. I don't remember. Uh, I remember hearing the security guards talking, like, like just sort of random chit chat. I was like, "This is just very fucking weird." <laughs> Were they going um, to JJ Abrams, or did they know? No, no, no. He was he was telling them the end of the film. Um, no, he wasn't. Uh, yeah, it was it was it was a very very strange interview. Though. Yeah, he was uh, he was just heading off to I can't remember where he was going actually. Oh, he was going somewhere for the uh, one of the mission premieres. Just a few months ago, I was talking to Carrie Ann Moss ahead of uh, the Matrix Four, and um, she she literally left her house and went and sat in her car in her garage, and she was like, "This is the place where I know I have a signal, and I know my children won't interrupt me. So this is how wow. I do it." Yeah, Shailene Woodley did the same for the podcast last year when I spoke to her. She was in her car and it was on Zoom, so I could I could see her in her car the entire time, and I got really worried because it was quite warm, and I didn't want you know I know Shailene Woodley's not a, you know not like a dog you leave in a car. She could open the door unlike a dog. A dog doesn't know how to get the door open. So if she'd got too hot, she would just simply open the door or roll the window down. But I was a little concerned that she might get a bit sweaty. Uh, but I, I have what James was saying about you know JJ going through the airport uh, put me in mind of the time I interviewed Paul Greengrass on the phone. I think it was for Jason Bourne, and he was driving home. And towards the end, towards the end of the interview, he stopped off, nipped into his uh, local uh, restaurant, uh, picked up a takeaway. I could hear him in the background going, "Yeah, name's Greengrass, Greengrass." <laughs> Being given this bag, and I, hold on, Chris, hold on, just a few seconds, mate. Then and, and he goes, boom, boom, boom. Thanks very much. Off you go. So there you go. The Amazing. director of United ninety three and the Born Supremacy. It's just like me and me. Just eats takeaway. Yes. Uh, anyway, I'm sure that hasn't answered your question in any way, shape, or form. But we I tried. hope, I hope, I hope we tried. We tried. We did try. And We're very it was, trying. It was a very, very good question, Isaac. Isaac Harris at LVW Harris ninety six on Twitter. If you want to have your question read out the Empire Podcast, you can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm at Chris Hewitt. You can slide into my DMs. You can reply to any of my tweets, or you can just tweet me every now and again. And if the question is good enough, then I will pop a little like next to it. And that'll mean we'll be considering it for a future episode. Right, should we have a second guest? Let's do it. Let's have Paul Thomas Anderson. Let's go director, 
director Dave Grohl. Okay. And hope that it happens. This director is Paul Thomas Anderson. Who? The second best directing Paul Anderson. Oh boy. That's a joke. I'm only kidding. I am only kidding. Uh, we love Paul Thomas Anderson. He is an amazing director. Boogie Nights, Magnolia, The Master, Helen, you name some now. There Will Be Blood. Yes. Uh, on, another one. I'm blanking now. He just put me on the spot. The one I like. Really like. A lot. Punchdrug Love. Yes. Okay. And the other one. Well, no, that's now it's James's turn. James, name a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Boogie Nights. I've He's done that. that. I wasn't listening. What other ones did uh, you do? <laughs> Magnolia. You've done Magnolia. Okay. There will be blood. Yes. These, I can I can I can confirm these are all his films. Good. Can you name another of his films? Licorice Pizza. Not Licorice Pizza. I mean, yes, Licorice Pizza, but not for the purposes of the uh, the, the the one with the 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 tailor. The the one with the the, the thing with the Phantom Thread. Phantom Thread. Thread. There you go. But you only remember that because it's half the name of a Star Wars movie. That's right. All right. There we go. There's James, the Phantom Thread menace. Uh, so anyway, he's back, back, back. And he has been back, back, back for a few months now because Licorice Pizza opened New Year's Day in this country. It is his latest movie. Uh, it is a uh, most excellent film. It is nominated for everything in the Oscars and BAFTAs. Uh, and he is doing the final rounds of interviews for it, I guess, before all the footing closes. A lot, of, a lot of people are doing that at the moment. And so we had the good fortune to talk to him, I hope, because it hasn't happened yet. Alex Godfrey is the person who has been tasked with interviewing Paul Thomas Anderson, and I hope it works out. <laughs> all right. If it has worked out, you're about to hear Paul Thomas Anderson talking to Alex Godfrey. Do please enjoy. I hope he talks to him about Soldier. That's a great film. See, told you. Second best directing Paul Anderson. Yeah. Did, did P.T. Anderson direct Event Horizon? I don't no, think he, he did. I don't think he did. Do you see, I don't Helen? think he did either. Do you see? Do you see? You're both monsters and you're going to get drummed out No, no, it's Monster Hunter, Helen. He did Monster Hunter. Yes. You're going to get drummed out of your own profession, I'm just saying. And Resident Evil. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And Resident Evil... The others. The others. <laughs> the Resident Evils 1 to 17. Can you name um, any of the other Resident Evils? Afterlife. Resurrection. Okay. Death. <laughs> yes, Resident Evil Death. Resident uh, Evil Death. By Mortal the way, Kombat. You did Mortal Kombat. He did Mortal Kombat. Resident Evil Mortal Kombat. Uh, <laughs> I would love. Whilst we're talking about immersive hotels, and maybe this is a question we could tackle on next week's show. Uh, an Event Horizon immersive hotel. Oh, God, oh yeah. my God! Can you? Pretty can amazing. you imagine? You go into the engineering. It's just like Liberate do Mix Infernis, and like people pulling off their skin and their eyeballs and their hands and shit. Yeah, oh, I amazing. would not be with you on that visit. You, y'all can take Ben. I've got a question. How does Doctor William Weirs? How do his eyes grow back? What do you mean? How do his eyes grow he, back? Because he, he. he removes his eyes and then they're back. When are they back? You know, when he's like towards the end, when he's like, like all naked and crisscrossed and he has eyes in his head. That's after we see him without eyes. I'm sh I'm convinced. It's been a long time since I've seen the film, but I'm absolutely convinced his eyes regrow. This is a very long intro to him. <laughs> it is. It's a very long intro, but, but it's an important question. It is an important question. One we should probably tackle yeah. as well. He does have eyes in the vision that Jolie Richardson has at the end of the film, but that's just a vision. Or is it? We don't know. Could be a waking dream. Maybe she's another person who can't tell the difference between her waking life and, and dreams. Wow. <laughs> anyway, maybe we'll answer that on another podcast. For now, here is Paul Thomas Anderson talking to Alex Godfrey. Do please enjoy. Paul Thomas Anderson, welcome to the Empire Podcast. 
Ah, thank you. <laughs> hey, there you go. Mm-hmm. Um, is it weird having people call you by your full name and middle name every time? You know, yeah. I mean, it was at first. I think I'm just used to it now. It's so, but it, it, I mean, yeah, yeah, it is. I, I now it's, um, I'm used to it, but every once in a while it just rings so odd. Um, can you imagine? Yeah. I mean, can you imagine somebody calling you by your full? Um, no, I can't. It would be really, does anyone in your life outside of work call you Paul Thomas Anderson? <laughs> no, my kids do as a joke. Right. Yeah, like, as we speak, you're in London. Um, we're not in the same room. Have you, I imagine you haven't, but have you, or would you want to go and revisit the Phantom Thread house? I drove through um, or around Fitzroy Square just yesterday when I came in. Hmm. And I got very tingly and excited and, and melancholy and, and kind of rush with, with you know, um, memory um i don't need to go back inside the house i mean that would be nice i suppose but uh, yeah even if i just sort of cruise by and and look outside there could be something nice about it but um yeah i don't know it was i don't know if if it's empty or if somebody bought it or 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 who's in it now but um Mm. i have you know that i have so many incredible memories of my time here um doing that film yeah. But really the memories are actually more attached, you know, funny enough to, to the streets of Soho where we'd, we'd walk back from shooting every night and walk to Technicolor and watch dailies. And so yeah. and every time I come here, I have such great memories. It's, it's strange going there. I mean, obviously I didn't have the experience you did. I didn't, I didn't make the film, but you you can, I have been past it a couple of times and it's weird to just sort of to stand and acknowledge it. And you can, you can just imagine Reynolds Woodcock just still being there. It's almost like it's haunted by him. I, I mean, I, I mean, it could end up happening. I'm, I've got enough time where I could see it, it happening. Um, <laughs> does it look empty or does it, does it look like somebody's in it? I, I mean, who knows with those houses? I think, I think I saw it was up for sale, but I mean, right. there's got to yeah. be something going on. I hope it's not empty. That would be a shame. It was owned by a woman who owned a, who seemed to uh, she owned a clothing line that I can't remember the name of. When we first spoke for Licorice Pizza uh, back in October, uh, it, I don't even think it was 100% finished back then. And so this stage of things was all new to you. And obviously you had no idea how people would respond to it and receive it. Uh, what's it been like over the past three or four months then, having it out in the world and having it being so loved and so lauded what's that been like for you it's been great it was it was a but it was a very um you know it was a very um explosive and then quiet um and and what i mean by that is that at least in the states we came we came you know we early november we think we started showing the film and and it was so thrilling and so exciting but you know the next thing you know we turned around by the the time of, you know, a month later, all this enthusiasm and energy that we had in terms of releasing the movie wide across the States was, it got quiet again, you know, when Omicron came around and, Mm. and, 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 um, so it was, it was a classic example of like, enjoy, you know, and I still have, I get reminded of this all the time, you know, you go through all this work and you do it and you, you can maybe count on your hands, um, both, both of them, the, the screenings that really matter that are so special that are, you know, the first couple that you do or yeah. 
you know, first time you sort of bring it over here. So exciting. And those memories are with me for a long time. And then, yeah, it was weird. But the fun thing is it's been out for so long, which is the kind of was the goal. I mean, we played in theaters for 13 weeks, which is sort of unheard of. Yeah. um, Without being, without being on a computer screen. Um, And that'll happen sometime in March, you know, for most places, but that that's been a, that's felt like a successful um, achievement in this Mm. day and age that so many people, you know, initially going to see the film, but then I guess slowly, slowly coming to discover it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's been really good. It's been great. It feels like it's the emotional impact of the film and the vibe of it all, the warmth and the sweetness seems to be something that's, I think people have latched onto and that's so welcome right now. It's such a sweet film. And I th- correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you were in the midst of writing something else before this one sort of took over your consciousness. Mm-hmm. What was going on that made you veer towards this sort of the tone, the sweetness and the sort of innocence of this film? Was there something that was going on that made you go into that sort of territory? Well, I'm reluctant to sound like this kind of person, but I don't know if you remember a few years ago, um, there was this guy who was president of the United States <laughs> and it was a really, it was really horrible. Mm. So every day was, every day was shit. Every day sucked. Every day was chaos. And yeah. Um, so um, maybe the only way around it was to just sort of lock yourself in your room and, and make believe and flashback or, you know, go back to another time where, um, you know, yeah, somehow anybody in their memory, anybody sort of the time that you grow up in is somehow very romantic. Yeah. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. You can't imagine that anything bad would have happened at that time ever, you know, (laughs) which of course is entirely inaccurate, but, um, but shit, I don't know. In this day and age, um, as complicated as things might've been in the seventies and shitty as they were, Mm. it all seems positively quaint right now. Yeah. You know, especially today uh, we we speak as war breaks out around us. Yeah. Um, I didn't, I don't know. I don't know about you, but I guess I'm one of those dummies, those liberal dummies who Mm -hmm. is still surprised. Yeah. You know, I'm still surprised. I mean, I, I don't know. Um, most friends I have with more common sense look at me and go, what did you think? What did you, you think everything was good? Was fine. I think, yeah, I'm, I'm one of those dummies that wakes up every morning thinking everything's going to be okay. And, I, yeah. there's a, and yet here we are. Yeah. Crazy day. Crazy yeah. day to be talking about. Um, no, yeah. I would hope um, many people listening to this have seen the film, but um, obviously, as you say, people are still discovering it, which is great. And going back to see it again, I know. Um, yeah. There's a lot of that, which is really cool. Yeah. But just in case people haven't seen it, it's so just to sum up as quick as I can. It's a, it's a wonderfully nostalgic, romantic drama about, um, well, a young woman in her mid twenties mm-hmm. played by Alana Haim, starting up a relationship of sorts with this peculiarly confident 15 year old guy uh, played by Cooper Hoffman. Um, much of it was inspired by the real life 1970s escapades of your friend, now producer Gary Getzman. That's right. And I know, as you've told me before, the germ that came from you seeing this kid come onto the a photographer's assistant at a school photo day. Yeah. Uh, there you go. I've saved you a lot of bother there. There you go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but what I want to ask is, as you were grabbing together all of these episodes and elements, some of which you were party to and many of which you weren't, mm-hmm. um, so you were melding them together, but then what is completely yours 
I, I guess, is the incredibly warm, sometimes confounding, but enormously good-hearted relationship at the heart of the mm-hmm. film that drives the whole film. Can you talk about what you wanted to do there? Is there something you had in mind or was it an organic evolution of just hanging, hanging out with these characters? Is there something you were going for in terms of the relationship? And can we talk about um, how you sort of went about that and this parade of shitty men that Alan has to navigate to, to, to get to where she wants to be, even though she doesn't might, might not know where she wants to be. Well, you know, I think to assume that I had some kind of plan gives me too much credit, right? I know, I mean, which I like, I like my experience has been, and particularly on this one, is that you, there's a strong a premise that you have and you write and you, you just keep asking yourself, well, what would really happen next? Well, what would really happen next? You know, um, mm. so um, once the first sort of, for lack of a better word, episode had happened, I felt like I understood what was going on. And what I mean by that is I had these two characters meet. You have Alana mm-hmm. and Gary meet. Um, he's too young for her. She's too old for him. But there's some kind of connection. Their banter really works, right? Um, and yeah. there's, and But what happens next? Well, she's got a gig as his chaperone mm-hmm. in New York. And what's going to happen next? Well, she's got stars in her eyes for one of his co-stars. That was maybe clearly a little bit more her age, right? Mm-hmm. So she ditches, you know, she she ditches uh, ditches the the young kid for the for the better target, which is this handsome young actor um, kind of dicky character. Um, he soon reveals his true colors, mm-hmm. and we have. And by this time, we're at page let's say twenty or twenty five. And right. once, once you've written that, a story's kind of emerged, you mm-hmm. know, and you think, right, this looks pretty good. This looks, this looks exactly right. Um, and then you just keep following it. What happens next? You know, what happens next is they go their own separate ways and then they meet back up again. Yeah. And there's another challenge and then there's another challenge. So you kind of emerge, what emerges as a theme you kind of hold on to is, these um these side routes that she takes in her life mm-hmm. um that generally seem to emerge as the same thing uh in different in different clothes you know here's here's my dalliance with a 60 something year old aging movie lothario who's going to try to seduce me in a you know red leather booth restaurant with martinis and all that kind of stuff but really in fact he's actually just wants to do lines from his movies and yeah, wants nothing to do. He isn't even talking to me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but all the way through the kind of the misread signals and the realities, the harsher realities of of a, of a potential romance with what turns out to be a gay man who's having to hide his sexuality. Yeah, uh, at a time when you know letting that emerge was was impossible. Mm. Um, so yeah, um, that there you have it. Um, yeah. You just, I don't know, when you're writing a story, I think you're always just, you, you, you have, you just keep asking yourself like, well, what would happen? What mm. would really happen? You know? Mm. Well, I tell you what, I know exactly what's going to happen is that she's going to start flirting with that guy and she's going to, she's off. You know, that's how she's, that's how that's going to go. Mm. And he's going to, he's going to keep flirting with her. But the second he's got somebody his own age that, that sort of rumbles around, he's going to lose her and, pretend that it's his babysitter and, you know, on and on and on. Yeah. Well, and one of the people 
she comes into, well, they both come into contact with is John Peters, the right infamous producer of uh, <laughs> Tim Burton's Batman, which is Eastwick. And he's a real wild man. Uh, I guess he was in life and certainly in this film. Um, is it right? No, Bradley Cooper plays him astonishingly. Um, he's kind of hilariously terrifying. Is it right? Was, was that the first thing you shot for the film? Is that, have I got that right? That's right. Um, which was great because it, it's like jumping into the deep end of a very dark and freezing cold pool. It's a shock to the system to get started that way. Normally you try and start a film if you have any kind of ability to start with something kind of, you know, a little lightweight the first day. It's a, it's a, it's a good, you know, good way to start, but we jumped right into the, the, the deep end of the pool yeah. um, because of scheduling. Because Bradley had to go back to do Nightmare Alley. You know, he had he they'd shut down Nightmare Alley because of COVID, and mm. so he grew his hair and grew a beard during COVID. And we shot him up first, and then he shaved and went back. But it was a great way to start for multiple reasons, um, not the least of which was that it 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 put you know Alana and Cooper, these two amateur actors, in 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 quite the bonding experience because they were having to survive the yeah full blown beratement of you know yeah. <laughs> Bradley Cooper, the, the onslaught. Um, so, so yeah, both of them hadn't acted before. You would not know it from seeing this film. Um, they're both incredibly natural and incredibly powerful performances. I think you told me that the only acting Cooper had ever done before was home movies with you. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. You're making me think, so, you know, you know it, it, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of alternately melancholy, but quite proud. You know, there's only, it's uh you only you're a virgin once, right? You know, so uh, it's incredible because you, you you this is the this is it. This is the first performances they'll yeah they've ever given, and and I'm pr and I'm proud that that's what it's what's going to be because it's there was there used to be a kind of um there must be a phrase for it, but I remember hearing some people speak about um, second season sitcom acting mm. and, and and the curse was is that you had all these fresh-faced young actors who would, would get the their 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 start on the first season of a sitcom and the sitcom would become a huge hit and you'd come back for season two and everyone would look look like complete you know be completely made up all the all the kind of innocence and magic of 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 what had happened had now been completely erased with like um you know airbrushing and yeah an enormous amount of cash in their pockets and all this kind of stuff and it was the appeal was gone you know what That's not gonna happen with them <laughs> okay um what were those home movies that you used to make with uh with cooper were, were they were they fun well, and games well hey fun and games maybe maybe for you but behind the scenes they were there there were a lot of hard work i right. mean they, <laughs> i mean we won't <laughs> We, um, anything that, you know, I particularly the last Mission Impossible Fallout, I think was the name of it, was the last one, right? With, uh, mm. that was, that was a huge inspiration for us. Um, <laughs> okay. a, a lot. Uh, I mean, I absolutely love that film. I think it's probably my favorite one in that whole series. Yeah, it's great. So we were really inspired by that. So there were a lot of hand-to-hand -hand combat fight scenes, you know, so very similar to the, the one that happens in the stall of the bathroom. We would do a lot of that. There's a, um, where I live, not, not far from where I live, there's an old um, a Nike missile site 
um, and it's still there. It's abandoned, and it's this great Mission Impossible type location. So we would go up there, and we would shoot my son Jack, um, you know, mm. discovering a Cooper in his his evil lair, and then they would have a fight, and eventually Cooper would be thrown off of the side of his evil lair to his death, like hundreds of feet below, right? That kind of shit. Okay, I'd love to. Would you, <laughs> would you put them on the Blu-ray? Yeah, they're gonna have their own Blu-ray. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see them. Just to finish, you know, I was I was frantically googling this morning because I, I had a thought. Hard Eight, your wonderful first feature film, was released in America twenty five years ago, almost to the day. Wow! Uh, Wikipedia tells me it was February twenty eighth. That sounds 19, right. Wow. Nineteen ninety seven. Wow! Wow! Yeah. yeah. I mean, I hadn't. I didn't know it was that long. Obviously, it, it was. But I get the impression you're not one to look back too much. But what do you think now? Sort of taking that in and sizing it all up and looking back to the young filmmaker who was just starting off and not knowing what was ahead of him. Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, already the memories are flooding back to me. I'm, I didn't, I barely even heard the last part of your question. Cause I started going down memory lane thinking mm. about that. Um, I, 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 I have these visions of being up in um, Berkeley, California, because we were mixing boogie nights yeah um because the, the 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 editing of the first film had been delayed and delayed and all kinds of things had gone wrong and on and on and on and it had dragged on mm. so i ended up being in this position by the time they'd released it in theaters and they released it in just a couple of handful of theaters yeah. but i happened to be in berkeley mixing boogie nights when it came out so it was the first opportunity that i ever had to go to see a film that i had made in in a movie theater you know yeah yeah um and it was in on University Avenue in B Berkeley, and it looked good and it sounded good and it was exciting. But you know, there's like three people in the theater, and it was sort of melancholy because that was kind of that's was all it wasn't given much attention or, or um, you know support. And you know, yeah. it was a small film. It wasn't like it was going to light the box office on fire or anything like that. But um, it was a tremendously life saving feeling to be, to, to be working on something else at the time, you know, yeah, that, that yeah. I kind of, um, I was able to learn that the satisfaction um, of doing this work is, is, is not, it, there's, there's joy in being able to see it on a screen um, and, and see people respond to it. But um, the, the real, part of it is 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 already behind you at that point um and luckily yeah. i didn't i didn't um i had something else to be working on so i didn't have that kind of the kind of fallout that i eventually did feel i remember get navigating the emotional kind of um depression that can happen when you put something out you put so much work into it and then mm. it's it's all kind of over yeah um, it was very hard for many many years that's something they never really warn you against Mm. Um, it's just how, you know, heavy duty, it can kind of weigh on you to work really hard on something and then put it out. And even if people love it and they're excited by it, you can get this great buzz and fulfillment from that, but they're on to the next as well. And, and you're yeah. sort of stuck there holding an empty bag, like, oh, what do I do next? That's, that's a hard thing to navigate as a young filmmaker. And that, that took me sure. years. So, well, look, it's been amazing to see what you did do next and then next and then next and then next it's been look, it's you've had a good 25 years and it's been great it's, it's been great to um to watch everything you've done and uh, this one particularly is is fantastic so um congrats on on all of it and thank you so much for talking to us today it was great
Long Live Empire, the 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 the, the greatest of all film film magazines for Thank sure. It's very yeah. kind of you to say. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. Thank you. All right. Okay, so that was Paul Thomas Anderson. Licorice Pizza is out in cinemas right now. I think it might be available to stream. I probably should know these things. Uh, it's available, it maybe available to stream right now, and it'll be out on home entertainment, DVD, Blu-ray, all that jazz at some point in the not too distant future. It won't be available in the final though, which apparently is what Licorice Pizza is. Huh. Uh, so apparently there was sense. a record store, a yeah. final record store in in LA called Licorice Pizza, and that's one of the things that he was inspired by mm. in his evocation of that era. Good work. Mm. Still not as good as Fent Horizon, if you ask oh me, but God. hey, what is? Uh, so let's talk now about the movie news that's happening. Now, mm. again, I'll say we're recording this on Tuesday, so there's lots of opportunity over the next couple of days for Hollywood to drop some major shit. Uh, if that happens, then when yeah. I land in London, I'm going to reconvene the pod team and we'll we'll cover it apart from helen who'll be sipping around destinations unknown uh but of the stuff we can talk about mm. what do you want to talk about should we get oppenheimer out of the way quickly it feels like we've been reporting on this film forever and um but but amazing people keep signing up to it so this is the obviously killian murphy is leading the film christopher nolan's film as the scientist who basically pioneered the bomb um, he's joined by Emily Blunt as his wife. We already have Florence Pugh, Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., Rami Malek, Josh Hartnett, Matthew Modine, Jack Quaid, Dylan Arnold, Ollie Hasvkivi, and Benny Safdie. They've all been on board for a little while. Now, the news this week is that Kenneth Branagh is in, obviously a Nolan regular at this mm. point, um, alongside Alden Ehrenreich, David Crumholt, and Michael Angarano. So kind of, I'm guessing those are kind of younger scientist types based purely on their previous experiences. Maybe not so much Kenneth Branagh. I'm guessing he's a higher government person. He's an older, younger scientist. Yes, indeed. But I mean, this is an embarrassment of riches, um, even by Christopher Nolan's standards. So hooray. There's every possibility they'll be adding people to this cast long after the film is completed. I mean, long after we're all dead, probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But um, but I'm here for it. Look, these are all good people. Mm. So um, it's nice to see Alden, Alden Ehrenreich get some more work because Solo wasn't his fault. And he's incredible in Hail Caesar. James might differ on the solo wasn't Alden Ehrenreich's fault. It's not his, you'd agree it's not his fault. I mean, sure. No, it's not, it's not, it's not entirely his fault. Oh my God. Uh, but no, no, Oppenheimer is good. I would say the cast here is the bomb. Hey. hey. Good stuff. Uh, so good cast then for the new C. Nolan movie. Jimbo, what have you got? Uh, your- There's the first picture of Daniel Radcliffe as Weird Al Yankovic, except you can't really see his face, so it just looks like Weird Al Yankovic. So I'm not saying that that's, uh, that's a massive Let me see this picture. Here is the picture. I'll bring it up for you. Here it is. Wait for it. Daniel Radcliffe as Weird Al Yankovic. Okay. That's interesting. I mean, it's, Or it's it a, could be Weird Al Yankovic as Daniel Radcliffe, to be honest. It's a, it's a very good picture of an accordion. It is. Yeah. I have to say... You know, I know my my opinion on Weird Al Yankovic has been espoused before on the podcast, uh, but I think you've you've just struck upon it, haven't you? The thing that would be much more interesting is Weird Al Yankovic playing Daniel Radcliffe <laughs> in a biopic of his life. Maybe that's what this is. Maybe it's all a double bluff. Maybe it is because Daniel Radcliffe has got this wonderful habit of committing himself to some absolutely bad shit insane projects uh, since he stopped playing Harry Potter, and who knows. Weird Al Yankovic, a man who is not to put too fine a point on it, in his 60s, 
playing Daniel Radcliffe from the moment that he was cast as Harry Potter, wow. all through the filming of the Harry Potter movies, okay. through all the touchstone films of Daniel Radcliffe's career, you know, Brilliant. Swiss Army Man, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now You See Me Too. Would he be an Equus on stage as well? He would be an Equus Amazing. on stage, yeah. yeah. So he'd be getting his lad out uh, in on stage in Equus. What? Wow. Um, I mean, look, that that's a fantastic pro- um, project. I'm That'd sure I, Hollywood I'm will, for that. Yeah, Hollywood will, will snap it up. It's not be the weird thing about both Weird Al and Daniel Radcliffe is it's absolutely not beyond the realm of possibility that there's no. some weird shit like that going yeah. on in this film. Um, He's not called Weird Al for nothing. Indeed, we have absolutely no reason to think it is. But I may have stumbled upon the truth here, like parallax view, styley. And wow. if I'm taken out in the next week or so, I've got too close to the truth. Like what on a date with your wife when you get home, like taken out like that. Or do you mean taken out? Like- no, although we are meant to be going to Hogsmore at some point. Oh, very nice. Which is nice. But no, I mean like taken out, like, you know, bullet, oh, to, the, okay, bullet right. to the head kind of thing. But then if you're taken out, then all of us would be in danger. I better just stay here in space to be safe. <laughs> just to be safe. Uh, yeah. All right. Good stuff. Yeah. Anything else you want to talk about? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, there uh, was a little bit more casting for Blade. Blade. <laughs> there it is. Laser. <laughs> Blazer, <laughs> and then the rest. We're going to do that every time, aren't we? For years, pretty to come. much. Yeah. yeah. So Marvel's Blade, of course. This is Blazer. Um, okay. Blazer. Mahershala Ali is playing the Daywalker. Oh, hey. that's good. Uh, Marvel's uh, human vampire hybrid, uh, and uh, he will be joined in the film, apparently in a major role by Aaron Pierre. Now he has been recently in Old, the film about the beach with the aging. You know, he <laughs> yes. played mid-sized sedan in that. Um, the he beach he that was, makes you old. He was also in the Underground Railroad, the Barry Jenkins series, uh, and he's apparently the voice of young Mustafa in the Lion King prequel. So he's already coming up and up, um, but he now has a big role in Blade. We don't know which one. I'm guessing he might be a bad guy. Delroy Lindo, of course, is also on board. We're speculating as some kind of whistler, but we don't really know. As some kind of whistler? Well, like as whistler, but like as a new whistler. <laughs> some kind of whistler. <laughs> Look, guy you know how to whistler, don't you? <laughs> in my head, that's Chris Christopherson and I'm, I'm working my yeah, way past uh, it. I mean, like, that's fair. I've worked my way past, you know, at that, I think Wesley Snipes is extraordinary casting as Blade, but I'm very much here for Mahershala Ali. Yeah. But like Chris Christopherson in my head is just Whistler. So I'm, I'm still getting past that. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, it, it'll come to me. That's fair. That's fair. And there, there are always ways of bringing people into these movies now, aren't there? Yeah. Indeed. So that's right. But Chris Christopherson's in his 80s. He's so good he's, in that role. He's in his 80s now, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, he's probably got better things to do. He has quite a lot in his life. So, you know, I'm sure he's fine. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm just, I, I'm just saying, I'm getting past it. I love Delroy Lindo too. So if he is Whistler, mm-hmm. I'll be very happy with that. Um, you might not he might be the baddie he might be you know but it makes so, sense yeah older gentleman makes sense but yeah I'm excited about Blade Blade Laser Blazer sounds good <laughs> yeah speaking of Aaron's though Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson who are the two <gasps> multi-hyphenates yes. behind things like Synchronic and The Endless and Spring mm. uh, and who have been working on Moon Knight and they can tell the difference between their waking lives and dreams and um, dreams that's right uh, but they have been handed the keys to Loki season two Ooh. Which is very exciting because they do, they're now obviously doing big league stuff as well as churning out quirky independent sci fi's where they are doing the script writing, the Mm -hmm. producing, the cinematography, the catering, Mm -hmm. the grip stuff, the gaffer stuff. You name it, they do literally everything on these films. That's impressive. Uh, Save a bundle. Yeah, they're great. So that's that's good stuff. Although um, obviously I will be sad to see that Kate Heron will not be back for that one. Well, yeah, but she's she's presumably. also great. She's so, also got a busy schedule. Are they definitely filming all? Are they definitely doing all six episodes? Because they didn't direct all the episodes. They did of not Moon do Knight. all of Moon Knight. No, perhaps part of them were Waking Night and part of them were Dreams. 
Very good. <laughs> That's most excellent. Speaking of people called Aaron, at least as their middle name, the trailer was dropped. That's a good segue. Thank you. The trailer was dropped. Like you, you should have said thank you very much. I should but, have. Well, I just, on, okay, I'm honestly. sorry. I'm jet lagged. Um, the trailer dropped last week for Baz Luhrmann's Elvis movie. Yes, it did. Or to give him his full name, Elvis Aaron Presley. Elvis Aaron Presley, King of Rock and Roll. Indeed. So, um, what did we think of this? This was uh, this was a lot. I have been and continue to anticipate this movie with with great hope in my heart. Uh, I'm a big Elvis fan, but, but also I should qualify that statement. My sister is a huge Elvis fan. Right, huge Elvis fan. Grew up her bedroom was liberally bedecked with Elvis merchandise. She had like flags and and uh, posters and all sorts of stuff and loads of merchandise. And even now, it's such an easy Christmas present for my sister because I just go, I'll get her something Elvis related and that'll be that. And I just, there you go, there's an, there's an Elvis thing. I, I went through a period growing up where I kind of didn't like his music and then you kind of discover it a little bit later in, in, in adult life. He was an astonishing, astonishing uh, singer and cultural force and all that. So I'm, I'm kind of, I was very much looking forward to Baz Luhrmann, who has this kind of obviously over the top mm-hmm. OTT grandiose operatic style, which I think might lend itself very, very well to yeah. a biopic. The question, of course, is who do you get to play Elvis? Yeah, toughy. Very tough a one. big one. I mean, there's lots of people played Elvis over the years. Lots of people played Elvis and some of them have been really, really great. Like Kurt Russell in the John Carpenter uh, movie. Yeah, Bruce Campbell. Uh, in in Bubba Hotel. Wait, you men- mentioned Bruce Campbell? What? I know. Can you imagine such a thing? Uh, lots of people played Elvis very, very convincingly. I think one of the key things about playing Elvis convincingly is that you have to look even just a little bit like Elvis. And with the best will in the world, Austin Butler, the actor that Baz Luhrmann has cast, after a long search, mm. it should be said, yeah, he's a character here that, that Baz Luhrmann has cast to play Elvis, looks nothing like Elvis. He looks more like the guy from Fallout Boy than he does Elvis. <laughs> I mean, there's like a couple of moments in this trailer where he doesn't are, scream not Elvis to There me. are no moments in okay. this trailer. Tom hey. Hanks, who's playing Colonel Tom Parker, who was Elvis's manager and, yeah. and who basically took advantage of Elvis for, for many, many years, looks more like Elvis in this trailer than Austin Butler does. And he's wearing a, a, a very odd and distracting um, prosthetics and so on to make him, him look bigger than yeah, he is. And his accent is interesting as yeah, well. It's a, it's yeah, a, it's a lot of accent. Uh, yeah. Look, I mean, B- B- Baz Luhrmann makes a lot of entertaining films. I, I, you know, I'm hoping for the best with this, but mm-hmm. it, it wasn't a slam dunk of a trailer for me. It wasn't a slam dunk. I was I, I was maybe the most uh, excited about this in the Empire office and I'm just going to give Baz the benefit of the doubt because he's mm-hmm. Baz and he, you know, he can, even when he's having a shocker, you know, there's still something great in his movies to, to kind of grab onto, whether it's an image or a performance or, you know, he's really great at this sense of of, 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 of music and bringing music to life and, you know, the, and conveying the joy of music on screen. There's a lovely moment in the trailer where you seem to, you know, you see Elvis playing in front of a crowd for the first time and, you know, in the 1950s, you know, he's, he's got the hips, he's got the swagger, he's got the shake, and women in the front row basically just lose their shit when that happens. And that was very, very symptomatic of what happened for the next two decades or so. Uh, so that's all good stuff. I, and, and Austin Butler looks like he's delivering the goods and from an acting standpoint, but the, the fact that he looks so unlike Elvis Presley, who was one of the most memorable people 
maybe this is me. Maybe I just maybe I should get past this shit. Uh, for example, we've got Andrew Dominic's um, Blonde coming up, in which Anna de Armas plays mm. Marilyn Monroe, and that is a situation where he's almost gone out of his way to cast someone who doesn't look like Marilyn Monroe, and he's almost challenging the viewers. I was I haven't seen the film, but this is my understanding. This is what I've I've read about the film. He's almost challenging viewers to get past that. That it's a more it's about more than just the face. It's about everything else. And so maybe this is this is on me. And maybe once I see Austin Butler's performance, Taron Egerton looks nothing like Elton nothing, John. Nothing, yeah. Nothing like great. Elton John. And Rocketman is fantastic. So maybe I should just get over myself. Yeah, it, it really could work. And as you say, I think the the very best biopic performances, it doesn't matter how much they look like them in the at the end of the day. But at the moment, it does. For the trailer, <laughs> at the moment for it the does. Trailer, it in does. the trailer, it does. We'll, we'll get past that. As I said on Twitter, uh, you know, t- to paraphrase Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park, uh, now eventually you do plan to have someone who looks like Elvis in your Elvis movie. But hey-ho. There is one more thing. And, and Chris, I think this may soothe your wounded heart. Okay. I think this will bring you comfort and joy. Shane Black. <gasps> oh, yes. And Robert Downey Jr. <gasps> are planning to re-team. <gasps> They're hoping to tackle a, a character we've seen before, Parker, <laughs> by Donald Westlake. So yes. we've had Lee Marvin play the character. Mm-hmm. We've had Jim Brown, Robert yes. Duval, Peter Coyote, mm-hmm. Mel Gibson, Jason yes. Statham have all played Parker before, but now we could have Robert Downey Jr. Mm-hmm. as well. Technically, of course, Mel Gibson didn't play Parker. He played Porter in the excellent payback. Uh, and there have been, actually, I don't think there's been that many people who've played Parker there's usually versions mm. of the character. The character's renamed, so he's Walker in Point Blank, for example, okay. not Parker. But they're all based on the they're Donald Wesley books. all based on the stories, books, yeah. right. And, and, and he's then, a career criminal? Career criminal. I have, I've read some of the books. I haven't read all of the books. The books are fantastic. They're, they're really more than sense of humor, and Parker is not someone that you fuck with. Uh, uh, you do so at your peril. This feels to me like a really good fit, but you know, I'd be there if Shane Black and Robert Downey Jr., did the old cliche they read the phone book out or you had Shane Black shopping list read out by Robert Downey Jr I would be totally there for that it would be absolutely fantastic uh, they you know they, they, they made Kiss Kiss Bang Bang together and Iron Man 3 together and that should buy them a lifetime pass into Valhalla as far as I'm concerned now I don't know whether that entitles him to uh, lightning lane access to some of the rides in Valhalla but you never know but I know someone on Twitter was saying that this isn't a great fit that there's actually a character a supporting character in Parker that Downey would be better suited for but Listen, I know this is a character they've tried to crack in the big screen many, many times, whether it's called Parker or not, and they haven't quite got there. And I can't think of someone better suited to do that than Shane Black, who's in, whose knowledge of film noir and characters like this, uh, hard-boiled crime fiction characters, is second to none. He so, ha- yes, please. He has an astonishing, astonishing collection of kind of noir-type books in his library. I interviewed him in his house, and it's just, it was, I was staring at what, I should have been listening to what you, he was saying, quite frankly. But I was, I was looking at all of the books on his shelves. You've had a Shane Black at his house? I have, indeed, <sighs> at his house. And with his excellent pit bull sitting by my feet. Oh, my God, this gets worse. It was a great interview. I interviewed Shane Black. First time I interviewed Shane Black, I interviewed him in LA. I was at Comic-Con. It was the year that Kiss Kiss Bang Bang came out. I'm a huge fan of Shane Black. I don't know if that's come across in the podcast. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Shane Black. And uh, <laughs> I flew from San Diego after Comic-Con had finished. I flew from San Diego to LA and I met him in a diner somewhere. And we spoke for a good hour and got on really, really well. I asked him all the right questions. 
And then at the end, I was going off to catch my flight back to uh, San Diego, where I was staying in a, frankly, a shitbox of a hotel. And uh, I do, I did what I sometimes do with people when I feel we've connected and there's no barrier between us, which is I stood up, I took out my business card because I had business cards back then. And I gave my business card and said, you know, I, here's my business card. And he looked at me and went, what's this for? So we can be best friends, Shane. So you can email me, Shane, and we can hang out and I can throw sticks at your dog and he can fetch it. And then we can go back to your house and we can read crime fiction together, Shane. That's what it's for. (laughs) Oh, no, Shane. Did you take it back? No. You did leave it with him. You would take it, motherfucker. You made him. I went, you know, so just in case you have ever wanted to get in touch or, uh, you know, if if you have if if you have any questions for me, (laughs) it was was awful. It was absolutely awful. Ah, Anyway, Parker. Yes. Yes. All right. Cannot wait for the tie in pens. That's going to be absolutely incredible. Uh, All right. I think we've done all right, despite the fact there wasn't much movie news. I think we've talked about it quite a lot. Hurrah. All right. Should we have the final guest? Let's do it. Final guest this week. I hope. I really hope. Storm Eunice. Interfiend did her level best, but hopefully, 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 Dave Grohl is going to be uh, the next guest you hear on the Emperor Podcast. Where do you start with Dave Grohl? Uh, he is, Nirvana. of course, the drummer in Nirvana. He is, in my opinion, the greatest drummer of all time, uh, including Ringo. Sorry, Ringo. Uh, he's an astonishing, astonishing drummer. And then, obviously, when Nirvana ended... Uh, he started out his own project called Foo Fighters and it was initially a solo project and then became one of the biggest bands in the world. Uh, and now, 25 years after the Foo Fighters began, Dave Grohl, who has always dabbled in film to an extent, he's a very charismatic man and he's, he likes to ham it up on the camera and you know, there are lots of really, really funny Foo Fighters videos. Uh, but he has, over the last few years, started directing stuff. He's directed documentaries like 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 uh like sound city and that one the fan that i can't remember uh <laughs> 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 uh, he directed obviously sonic highways the, uh, the 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 show that documented how the foos made the album of the same name uh and he has cameoed in stuff as well mm. he was himself recently in bill and ted face the music he was uh he was himself in the muppets back in 2011 yeah. he played the devil challenging jb <laughs> And uh, Rage Cage, the Tenacious D themselves to a rock off. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in Tenacious D and the Pick of Destiny, my God, I love that film so much. Uh, and now, he, finally, he and the Foo Fighters have decided to make a movie. And it's not just a, a, a concert film. It is a full-blown, proper film, a horror comedy called Studio 666, in which the Foo Fighters played themselves who are trying to record an album in a haunted mansion and Dave gets possessed and starts running around the place and going berserk. Mm. That's pretty much it. It's pretty much it. You might think that's a spoiler, but that's literally all in the trailer and a lot more besides. If you haven't seen the trailer, don't watch the trailer. Don't watch the trailer. Is it better than his iconic role in the West Wing? That's the question. Who do you play in the West Wing? Dave Grohl. <laughs> well, give me the context. What uh, they play at, uh, at Matt Santos's. I want to say his his victory party when he wins the election. Spoiler. Spoiler. Uh, <laughs> the Foo Fighters play. So this is season six or seven? Seven. And this will be season seven. Yeah. Okay. All right. Are they good? Sure. What, Obviously. They, what, what song do they play? Oh, that is a good question. It's got to be "Learn to Fly" or something, doesn't it? Anyway, yes, uh, I'm a huge, huge fan of Dave Grohl. Uh, and so I was very, very excited to be in the same room as him. I spoke to him for the most recent issue of Empire Magazine that is available right now. Resolve. Resolve. They play Resolve. Resolve. They played Resolve? Yeah. In Election Day Part 2. Really? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a good song. And but- Miracle, I believe. 
Oh, that's a good song. Oh, yes, I do remember the play the Miracle as well. That's the one that I remember. I don't remember them playing Resolve. I See, do that's remember a lovely Miracle. song. Miracle's a lovely song. And that's from their two-part album. They released a double album called In Your in Honour. Your Honour. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's my favourite Foo Fighters. That's my favourite Foo Fighters album. Well, see, there you go. See, it's good. And one album is all rocky stuff that I put on one night when we did a poker night. And by the time it got to, I think <laughs> it was The Deepest Blues or Black, uh, everyone told me to turn it off because it was just Dave Grohl screaming. <laughs> which the other is, one's really it, chill. And the other one's really chill mm. and acoustic which and might have worked quite well for a get together with friends yeah you yes think, but you? I, know, I was like i'm gonna put on the first album first <laughs> and then build up to the acoustic stuff yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Anyway. i once i once had friends over and we were we basically cooked dinner together and then edit so we were there for like a full like you know long evening and we had tracy chapman's album on repeat which one the, the one everybody had uh, <laughs> <laughs> the one with fast car yeah yeah and one of my friends says he still can't listen to it because we listened to it so many times in a really? row that night that it just like spoiled it for him forever so I would like to apologise to Kevin if you're listening and I know you might be it's really sorry about that man it's a good album you should give it another chance if not now then when oh boy oh. hey folks it's Chris here jumping in very very quick now I'm back on terra firma back in England no longer in space to tell you that you should probably only listen to this Dave Grohl interview if you have seen Studio 666 let's just say that Dave Grohl is no respecter of spoilers enjoy we are delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the star of Studio 666 and the chief fighter of Foo, Mr. Dave Grohl. How are you, man? Great. I don't know if I would consider myself the star of the movie, though. I know that I'm the character that winds throughout the film and eventually is the only one to survive. Spoiler alert. But um, I would have to consider a lot of the other players a bit more valuable than myself. Lionel Richie, Jeff Garland, Will Forte. Lionel Richie, yeah. I, I mean, you had me at Lionel Richie. There it is. <laughs> you had me at Lionel Richie swearing as well, which is Well, listen, delicious. that wasn't in the first take. That wasn't in the script. He, he brought that himself. Um, of course, he only did maybe two takes because he's such a brilliant dude he is the quintessential entertainer whether it's singing or or uh or acting in a film the guy just brings the fucking thunder and so he did one take that was relatively tame and he said you want me to rant like you know like ratchet up a little bit we said sure and he said that's my fucking song that's my fucking song so it it really <laughs> he stole he, not only the scene but the movie so <laughs> You had him a fucking hello. I mean, I I have to say, Dave, I had a blast with the film. And I, I love this kind of phase of your career at the moment where you just seem to be doing whatever the hell you want to do. Do you want to host a late night talk show for a bit? I'll do that. You know, want to star in a film? I will do that. Want to record a film in a creepy house? Obviously, this isn't the exact recording process for Medicine at Midnight, but it's not far off. So, you know, what's left on the, on the girl bucket list? You, it's almost like... You get to a certain age and you stop caring about what you're going to wear out of the house. You know what I mean? <laughs> you start going to the shop in your sweatpants and Crocs. You start going to the bar in the same shirt you wore yesterday, things like that. You know, having been in the, this, having been in this band for 26 years, a lot of the, the, projects that we do outside of the music and the albums and the touring and the concerts 
they're almost meant to entertain the band more than they are to entertain you. You know, I mean, you look at all of the opportunities and and the resource that we have. Anything seems possible at this point. Um, and we're willing to go there. I mean, as with this movie, think about it. There hasn't been a rock and roll movie in a long time. There hasn't been a rock band that's made a full length feature film in a long time. And um and we've sat around talking about this recently, trying to trying to figure out what other bands would do this. You know, what other bands would um, poke this much fun at themselves or have this much fun being a band? Um, I, we were almost born to do it after 26 years of the ridiculous videos and and clearly not taking ourselves too seriously. Obviously, when we write our songs and we make our records and we go play the shows, that's 100% like head down, wanting to be the best band we could possibly be. Everything else is just like candy in a fucking jar. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't think we ever aspired to do something like this or imagined that we would actually pull it off. But having seen it in a theater just a few days ago, um, I sat there and thought, well, it, it almost makes sense. I mean, this is, it's what a Foo Fighters thing to do. You know? <laughs> what was the bit that got the biggest crowd reaction? Because I have to say there's without going too much into spoilers, even though you spoiled the end of the film in the first fucking minute, listen right. to you. Whatever. It's all right. It, it, it's fine. These things happen. Um, what was some, there's a, there's a kill in this. There's one kill in particular. I think it's an all timer. And I imagine that must've got a big reaction. Well, first of all, the person that came up with all the ideas for the kills is a man named Tony Gardner. He's a special effects legend here in Hollywood. He's been working for decades. He invented Chucky, Bride of Chucky. He was in the thriller video. That There's the zombie that comes out of the grave and his fucking arm falls off. That's Tony. Like, he's been around a long time. So... Um, so that the the ideas for the kills came from Tony and the process of coming up with those ideas was literally walking around the property with a with a notepad and a pen laughing hysterically. Oh, my God. You know, what we could do take Chris, slam his head into the fucking grill, stab him 65 times in the back. You're covered in blood. Rami, get a chainsaw. He's fucking Whitney Cummings. Just you're under the bed. You splay them, you know. So and right. What you're doing right now is exactly what we were doing as this was coming out of his mouth. And let me let me just say that Tony is the sweetest, kindest, most gentle dad. You know, he's, he's a, practically a, a nerdy, meek little guy that you just want to fucking hug and cuddle. And he comes up with the most grisly, gruesome, gory ideas. The shit that goes on in Tony's head. It's yeah, I don't even want to know what he dreams about at night. But um, but yes, that kill probably gets the most fucking uh, applause of anything else in the movie. Oh, that being said, only rivaled by Lionel's scene. <laughs> <laughs> just to be in the same, just to make, make sure we're on the same page, Dave. Which which kill are you talking about? Fucking Rami getting chainsawed, man, in half. That is correct. Not that to mention correct. it's a sex scene. He's fucking Whitney Cummings, and I chop them both in half with a chainsaw from underneath the bed. 
Come on. If that's not getting me an Oscar, I don't know what is. <laughs> now, people listen to this at home may be going, you just spoiled the movie. Believe me, folks, I, we have not spoiled the movie. You have not seen anything in cinema until you've seen Dave Grohl chainsaw two people in half whilst they're fucking. It's, it's beautiful. It's you know, Fellini-esque. You know, like when Goodfellas comes on TV, you just fucking watch it every time it's on, even though you know it's going to happen. This is yeah. this is the chainsaw scene. You know it's going to happen, <laughs> but you're going to watch it every fucking time. <laughs> it's the Foo Fighters Chainsaw Massacre, and I'm absolutely here for it. Um, I mean, but coming up with this movie, we spoke recently for the, for the Empire Magazine. I, I, I talk, we talked about this a little bit. But coming up with this movie... Yeah, you could have gone a million different ways. You could have done a thing where you were the big hero of the piece, kicking ass, taking names, chainsaw in hand, a bit like Ash and Evil Dead. Uh, but you're not. You're kind of the, the fiddling of the piece here. Where, where did that idea come from? Well, you know, the basic premise for the film uh, came about while we were recording the new record, Medicine at Midnight, in that house. So to go back... We started writing and demoing the music for that album in the end of 2019. Um, whenever I start to write material for an album, I like to be by myself. And I set up a little portable studio. I find somewhere where I could just close the door, be totally alone, isolated, and focus on writing. Um, so I was looking for a house where I could set up and just be by myself to figure out new material at that time that same time my landlord from 10 years ago emails me and says hey i'm selling the house do you want to buy it this is the house in the film i lived in this house fucking 10 years ago and i said no no, i don't want to buy it but if i could rent it for a little while to record some stuff he said sure so we set up in that living room and started uh, demoing. And that house, honestly, sounded amazing. I'm sending the demos to my producer, best friend, Greg Kirsten. He's like, where are you recording these drums? I said, in this living room, in this old house that I used to live in 10 years ago. He said, let's just make the record there. At that same time, a friend of mine texts me as he comes out of a meeting, totally unrelated to the Foo Fighters, and says, I was just in this meeting where these people want to make a horror film with your band. And I was like, why? What a stupid fucking idea. Why would we ever do something that gigantically ridiculous? Like that just, I mean, you know, we're not averse to terrible ideas, but come on, this yeah. one's too much. And then I go back to the house and start writing. I'm like, wait a second, we already have the house. So I came up with the idea. Food fighters need to make a record. We don't want to use any of the studios we've used for 26 years. Let's find somewhere cool. We move into an old house. House turns out to be haunted. I become fucking possessed. I murder the band over creative differences. And then I go solo. That was it. And everyone goes, ha, 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 whatever, Dave. And then, then it goes to some screenwriters. And then we get Tony Gardner's special effects. Then we get BJ as a director. Now there's 100 people. And it's fucking, it's a full-length feature film. And we're just like, wait, I, what? Is, this is, and then we start seeing dailies. We're like, oh, my God, we're making a fucking movie. I, it wasn't, it was never in the cards. It wasn't something we ever imagined doing. So. Yeah. It's wild. It, I mean, it, it, was there, is there something, I mean, for, for as much fun as the film is, was there something playing on your mind with this? Because there seems to be 
you know, it, it seems to be addressing notions of tyrannical band leaders, of people wanting to go solo. I mean, in this in this film, you're making an endless song, and you know, play is 23 minutes long. So, you know, did that all come into it when you were thinking about this movie? Been there, done that. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, you have to understand that we were basically making. Spinal Tap meets the Evil Dead. Like we played on all of these rock and roll stereotypes and cliches. Like, first of all, rock and roll 101. Lead singer hates his band goes solo. That's like, how many fucking times have you heard that story? And it is such a cliche. Nowadays, lead singers just go solo while they're still in their fucking band. Like, what is that even like? How do you do that? and then, you know, just silly little things like walk into a room and go, yeah, to hear the acoustics in a room. I am here to tell you that is fucking bullshit. I've seen every producer in the world walk into a room and clap their hands six times. And it's like, dude, just let me fucking set up the drums. Come on. Like, let's go. Um, and then, you know, creative differences and creative tension, writing the endless song, could, you know, trying to make your Magnus Opus fucking masterpiece, like, all of that shit months and months on one song they're just the funniest cliches add some chainsaws and buckets of fake blood studio 666 that's basically (laughs) amazing and when we spoke last you told me that just by chance turns out Finn Diesel lives down the street (laughs) that's right I mean this is funny because um we were filming in this house and it's in a nice little neighborhood. So one of the production assistants had the, you know, the unfortunate job of going around to all the neighbors, knocking on their doors and saying, hi, we're working on a movie down the street. Please don't call the cops. Just call us first. Knocks on one of the doors and a nice woman answers and she goes, oh, what, what, what film are you making? And uh, the production assistant said, well, it's a band that's making a horror film. Oh, what band? Well, it's the Foo Fighters. Oh, my God. We love the Foo Fighters. And it was fucking Vin Diesel's wife. And so the production assistant comes back. It's like, do you know Vin Diesel lives fucking five houses down? We're like, what? Oh, my God. So, of course, we thought, shit, get Vin Diesel to do a cameo in our horror film. And we got ourselves like. $500 million at the box office, like no brainer. So we actually, we talked, we sort of wanted him to be the delivery guy in the film. And Uh. which is like a four hour day and a fucking five minute walk from his front door, but it didn't pan out. So we got Will Forte, thankfully, because he's a fucking genius. And we've known him from doing Saturday Night Live over the years, you know? He's not only the sweetest dude in the world, but I, he's one of the funniest human beings on earth. And um, he did us, he did us a solid, he did us a favor and he came on our poster. Finn's loss, believe me. But you know, Hey, if there's a studio six, six, seven, get him. I know. I smell a comeback. Sounds like a comeback. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that uh, really interested me about the film is that there's really no Foo Fighters songs in the film. I mean, you have to imagine. I remember at one point when we were working on the trailer, they used one of our songs in the trailer, in this early version of the trailer, this song called Love Dies Young, which was a song yeah. that was recorded in that living room. It is like, and then like, chainsaws and fucking blood. I'm like, it doesn't. Unfortunately, those two things don't necessarily 
go hand in hand. But what does go hand in hand with a horror film is fucking heavy metal is like big riffs and sludgy doom metal chords and thrash metal drums. And those two things just happen to marry uh, together perfectly. And I'm an old school, you know, I grew up in the early eighties, I discovered like punk rock and hardcore and underground metal. Um, and most of the underground metal bands at the time had this fascination with like Satan and the devil and, you know, like Venom and Slayer and Metallica. That's the music I grew up listening to. I've never been in a band that plays that type of music, but I'm fucking well-versed in that whole genre. So I'm like, oh, this is easy. I'll just make a thrash metal record. You know, we'll, uh, we'll make all this heavy stuff for us to be playing. Yes, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't consider that like a career direction, <laughs> but but it did seem to work within the film. Yeah. You don't sing either, Dave, in this. Was that a, a, a deliberate decision? No, I think it was written into the script that way. I mean, the funny thing is, uh, you know, the purpose of the song in the film is that once it's completed, it will unleash the demon in the house and unleash the demon in me, um, which the band eventually catches on and realizes that we can't finish that song because if we do, Dave will turn into Satan or whatever. Um, so the director says, Hey man, uh, we need like a 15, 20 minute long metal instrumental. You got one. I'm like, um, hold on. And I went down to the studio and recorded it in like four and a half hours. I'm like, there you go. I gave it to him. It's called like Lacrimus de Ibrius or something. That's the next record right there. You don't need to do any, any work. Album 11 is sorted. Well, you know, the funny thing is I just finished working on the Dream Widow record. So Dream Widow is the band that was in the house and was murdered uh, 25 years before we set foot on the property. Um, so I came up with a great idea like, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll just make their lost album. Everyone's like, hey, Dave, go to the studio some more. <laughs> so, so I've been in the studio making an album by a fictitious band and trying as hard as I can to make it not sound like me, which is fun, you know? I mean, what else am I going to do? I fucking, I wake up at 6.45, I make the kids breakfast, get them in the car, take them to school, come down here, talk about a horror film, and then go make a metal record by a fictitious band. I have no complaints. That is it. That's the Grohl bucket list we were talking about earlier on. Oh, man. Cannot wait to hear it. Can't wait to hear it. Dave Grohl, pleasure, sir. Thanks so much for your time. My man. Take care. Okay, so that was Dave Grohl. I hope. I hope it's happened. We're recording this now. <laughs> Pull back the curtain even further. We're recording this now on Wednesday morning. Yes. Here at the Galactic Star Cruiser. And on the Halcyon, on the good ship Halcyon. There we are. Shit went down last night, folks. I, I don't even want to tell you, because unlike other people, other, uh, air quotes, influencers who are here, who are filming <laughs> every goddamn thing, seemingly intent on ruining all the surprises of this place for people Look, who I guess might be coming here. I don't quite there, get there that. There may be, in the same way that you read the end of movies on Wikipedia, there may be people who just want to know what happens. Yeah, but sometimes I read the end of a... That's a good point. That's a good yes. point. But sometimes I'll, like you, Chris. I'll read the end of a movie or a TV show to save me the time of watching it. Yeah. I don't, do you and really equally, to, there may be people who don't want to or can't come to Florida, yeah, but want point. to know all about this. This is a good point. It might be Star Wars obsessives who just... Yeah, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. As long as they are 
signposting things, then yeah. it's all good. All we can say is it built to a satisfying climax. I'm not going to say that the Ewok sex party was unexpected, it but was it was unexpected. a welcome development. It wasn't on the mm. itinerary I got. Itinerary? Got a proper yub-nubbing. Oh, no. A yub-nub and tug. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, boy. It's just on behalf of all Ewoks. Uh-huh. I'm just appalled right now. Oh, yeah. That was a sticky wicket. Oh, what? Get out. <laughs> oh, you should see the size of his log, Ray. No. Come on uh, now. No, uh, no. No. I can't. No. This is this has been this has been good. How's <laughs> <laughs> it though? All right, that was Dave Grohl. I hope Hooray. you enjoyed it. I uh, hope I enjoyed it. Hope everyone enjoyed it. Shall we talk about some films now? Films Let's that are out it. this week for you to see in your multiplex and on your sofaplex, should you so desire. Mm. Uh, where should we start? We have we have Cyrano. We have Studio Six Six Six. We have the Duke. We got the Duke, uh, and we have, of course, Kimmy. Yeah. Where do you want to start? Should we just do them in that order? Yeah. What was first? Cyrano. Okay, let's do Cyrano. Let's do the one that only Helen has seen. Yeah, exactly. Get get my bit out of the way quickly. So this is an adaptation of the musical based on Rostand's Cyrano de Bergerac. So it's a prequel to Bergerac is what you're saying? It is not connected to Bergerac. Ian McShane does not at any point appear. Oh. oh. What? You've, gone, you've made the classic <gasps> error. I have. Bergerac for love, Joy. I have. I apologise. John Nettles. Do- John Nettles also doesn't Helen appear. has been stung by yes. <laughs> <laughs> but my point was, this has nothing to do with Bergerac, so if we could just get those jokes out of bam, your system now, bam, bam, I can wait. It's fine. Bam, bam, bam. It's not like we have breakfast oh, yeah. after this. Oh, breakfast. So anyway, yes. Cyrano is the based on the musical from 2018, which was an adaptation of the play from 18, um, which is oh. based on the life of the actual person who was an actual science fiction writer and poet and swordsman and warrior and everything else. Steve Martin. Cyrano de Bergerac, mm-hmm. which was also adapted as Roxanne starring Steve Martin and Daryl Hannah in the 80s. And he's a private investigator. I think you're thinking of Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, but honestly, I'm not sure at this point. Where are okay. we getting this? No, it's fine. Carry on. Okay. So so it's the story of a guy who has all these accomplishments, has a lot going on in his life, but is in, madly in love with his, uh, in this case, friend, uh, Roxanne, who's played by Halle Bennett. Roxanne! Cyrano himself, <laughs> played by Peter Dinklage. Dinklage! Doesn't think he's in with a chance because she's all, you know, young and pretty and everything, and he doesn't feel like he is either of those things. he's got a great big massive nose. Usually he does. In this case, he doesn't. What? Yeah, I know. It's a bit of a departure. They've lost the nose. They've lost the nose. Okay. But meanwhile, she falls in love with one of his mates, um, Roxanne. Roxanne! (laughs) (laughs) She falls in love with one of his mates, who's played by (laughs) Kelvin Harrison Jr. His name is Christian. And Christian, like, is deeply into her too, but is absolutely incapable of, like, talking to her about it because he's kind of shy. Like Raj in The Big Bang Theory. Um, Is that what it's based on? It's not. Very much not. I feel like you're being disrespectful of a story that I actually adore with all my heart. So I'm just going to have to ask you to be quiet now. Um, Please leave. Please leave, sir. We will eject you into the the vacuum of space. space. I'm going to get spaced from the podcast. Yeah. Well, if it was up to me. Mm-hmm. Anywho, please, Helen. I, I apologise for James. <laughs> His behaviour, frankly, I, I imagine you know he didn't get much sleep last night. Oh, no, Not because fair. we were doing sexy things. I don't want uh, to yeah. know. Although those Ewoks I mean, did come round at three yeah. in the morning. Yeah, and started playing xylophones on our helmets. <laughs> well, look, stormtroopers' helmets. Uh, yes. Sure, sure. Yeah. Whatever you say, you know, guys. Like at the end of- look, it's what you do with your helmets is your own business. I'm not yep, even asking. Yep. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cyrano's in love with Roxanne. Roxanne's Roxanne. in love with 
Christian, Christian asks Cyrano's help in writing love letters to the object of his affection. Oh, okay. Damn you. <laughs> She's learning. So this allows Cyrano to express all the feelings that he has for this woman um, without having to actually come clean and admit that he himself is in love with her. Okay. Okay. Uh, so that's the classic story. Classic there story. are some stories, uh, there are some songs added to this one. They are good, but not like classic bangers. They're not going to stick in your head Bruno style, I don't think. But they're, okay. they're, they they move the story along. Um, they're mostly effective. Um, How are the voices? Are they all good? Yeah, they're not bad, actually. Um, like, they're not all like super trained singers, but they've got like, you know, Peter English has a great voice anyway, and he's got that kind of gravelly tone it's to it. It actually works very well. Yeah. Voice. Um, so I, I quite enjoyed it from that point of view. Um, Joe Wright, I think, does a good job as well. He took them all to Sicily. They shot in these gorgeous, like, sun-soaked, um, sandy-coloured stone, old-school buildings. It looks beautiful. They've stuck quite close to the kind of makeup and clothing that people actually wore in the time frame in the sort of 1600s, 1700s. So some of the makeup is appalling on purpose. This is not to criticise the makeup artists. Um Ben Mendelssohn in particular, because he's the kind of foppish Duke de Guise, is appalling looking, but in, in, in the right way, he should he should be appalling looking. Um, so it, that, that I find quite jarring, because on one hand, it looks gorgeous and sumptuous and everything else. On the other mm-hmm. hand, these people look like clowns, literally. Um, but at the same time, I think my biggest issue with this, and it is something that not everyone is going to have or should have, is that I adore the 1990 Cyrano de Bergerac with all of my heart. And therefore, so I was sitting in this going, I mean, it's good, but you know. You do. You love that film. I lo- that's literally, I mean, all, one of my all-time favourite films. Mm-hmm. All the rest are kind of usual suspects, sort of, you know, the apartment and not Kaiser the usual Shose. suspects. Kaiser oh, <laughs> All the rest are like His Girl Friday, <laughs> The Apartment, you know, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, all the rest. But but that one, this one is is literally up there with The Princess Bride at the top. Okay. So I liked it, but I, I you know, I can't go the full way and like love it because I'm like there's just this better it feels film. like you're cheating there's a better film mm. in the way of, of me loving this film this film is good but the the other one is better it's good but it's not right I mean it is right but it's okay. not no it's it right, is it is good. right but it is good it's right with a W but maybe it's right but slightly wrong it's all wrong but it's all right if you will um, to quote Dolly Parton okay all right, I have no idea whether you like this film or not. <laughs> <laughs> I did like it. Okay. I just didn't, like, I wanted to love it and I didn't love it. Okay. Um, and I, I don't love some of the changes they've done with the story. But I object to them less than I do to some of the changes they made with the stage show that's going on at the moment with James McAvoy, okay. which made me actively angry. Also no nose, right? No, no, I, I was kind of okay with that. I think they've done, tried. they've tried to do something else basically with it. I mean, Peter Dinklage is sort of... Um, just acts like someone who doesn't think people will love him. Okay. So you kind of, you know, it seems improbable, but there you go. Okay, so we kind of fell in step with Helen in this one, and we gave this three stars. Three stars for Cyrano, but that is, as we always say in the Empire Podcast, a recommendation. It is, yeah. Next up, I'm going to switch from my uh, order. I said earlier on, um, we're going to bring Jimbo in to talk about the Duke. The Duke. You got the Duke? The Duke. You got the Duke? uh, Jim Broadbent is the Duke, a number one. Oh boy. See, we're both doing different references here. Yeah. Yeah. Slightly across yeah. purposes, but it's okay. Yes. So in this one, uh, it takes place in the not too distant future. And uh, Jim Broadbent is essentially in charge of the Supermax prison that is in New York. <laughs> no. Um, no? You watched this. I watched you watch this. I know in, you've seen it. In my defense, I was doing other things while I was watching it. So I may have missed the point. No, uh, this is not. This is not. This is, in fact, the true story of the fantastically named Kempton Bunton, uh, who is a gentleman who in the 1960s may or may not have stolen a very famous 
painting, specifically Goya's portrait of the Duke of Wellington. And if Stephen Fry taught us nothing, is that when you steal a Wellington, you put your foot in it. So, um, oh boy, <laughs> this this is. Um, this is Roger Mitchell's last film. Of course, this this debuted, I think, I want to say in Venice in 2020. It's taken its while to come to cinemas here. Uh, but Roger Mitchell, of course, uh, famously Notting Hill director, among other things. My cousin Rachel, uh, he died tragically last year. So this becomes his his sort of uh, his sort of capping film. And it's it's actually quite a sweet film to sort of fit that role because it's like it's none more English. It's very very it's. It's a little bit now. This, your mileage may vary on this. For me, it's a bit like curling up in the winter with a mug of hot marmite. But for most people, that's a very oh, upsetting no. experience. So let's just say it's more like a nice, sweet cup of tea with a digestive biscuit to dunk in, uh, because uh, he plays this sort of very charming, very keen, sort of slightly fuckwittish sort of uh, uh, n- sort of Newcastle-born man uh, who sort of floats from jobs to job, regularly getting fired because his strong sort of like um, socialist values get in the way of normal life. He stands and makes moral stands on every conceivable issue, whether it be racism, whether it be equality. He doesn't want to pay his TV license. So you could see this as a sort of small capsule analogy for the larger license fee debate. Um, even removes the uh, removes something from his television to stop him picking up BBC One so he doesn't need to buy a TV license. That doesn't go well either. But he has a certain sort of fuckwittish appeal, but he's just lovely and he's charming and it's Jim Broadbent. So of course, he's all of these little things. Um, and his wife here is played by Helen Mirren, who doesn't have a lot to do. She, she basically embodies the phrase long-suffering. She really <laughs> does. She really... I mean, she plays it beautifully. It's yeah. just great because she's fucking Helen Mirren. But... She, um, what? No, she's... I mean... Anyway, she's Helen Mirren, so she's great, but I kind of... I, I wanted to see more of that character, to be honest with you. Uh, but Jim Broadbent kind of carries this, and it's super, super sweet, and it's, you know... <laughs> the heist is just magnificent because, like, if you're going to do a heist movie, you expect, you know, the, the key structure to be, you know, the conceptualization of the plot, the planning of the plot, the execution of the heist, all of this sort of stuff. But it feels like a fucking, like, halfway afterthought, which is kind of what it is, like this random thing that gets sort of staggered into. And it all plays out as he makes... Makes this this moral stand and it's lovely obviously because it is based on a true story um but it's just super sweet and i love the way it's kind of shot in this sort of very obviously it's set in the 1960s but it's shot in a sort of beautiful manner evoking that era it uses split screen mm. and sort of strange sort of visual devices to do it but the whole thing just has a warm fuzziness to it it's not what i would call exciting it's not what i would call surprising although there are a couple of surprises in there um but it is quite sweet and i think it's one of these things you'd have to try particularly hard not to be charmed by yeah I, I find it very charming. And I like that, you know, British period drama conjures up, you know, all the people you like, James, you know, all the downton nonsense about <laughs> nobility and, and rich people having no problems. And this is very much not that, you know, they mm. live on a, a normal working class street. You know, she is basically working her fingers to the bone. Yeah cleaning houses because he keeps getting himself in trouble for his ideals. And she shares those ideals and she admires them for that. But at the same time, it's like, could you not just hold a job? You know, so I, I kind of love that dynamic in their relationship. I love the dynamic he has with his sons yeah. and they both have with their sons and this sort of family unit. And um, and it does actually kind of address some questions that we're still working with today, you know, about mm. the value of supporting the arts with all this money when you have poor people who are struggling and suffering and yeah. maybe we should be helping them out instead or at least as well so yeah I was I was super charmed by this I think it's lovely yeah and it's the whole point is he's, he's ransoming this painting 
to try and get free TV licenses for the over 75s, which is ultimately what did happen. But uh, yeah, it's 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 a lovely little film. Well, it's, for a while. Yeah, yeah. It's, it didn't happen exactly straight away. Um, but yeah, it's lovely. It's good. I must admit, while I enjoyed this an awful lot, I was surprised by the number of five-star reviews it got. Like, it doesn't feel to me like a nailed-on five-star film. It's a lovely, lovely film, but I'm not sure I'd call it a masterpiece. Um, but sure, you know, if that's your jam, go for it. <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I think it's a warm four, personally. I, I really liked it, but uh, but I'm not, yeah. I, I, I don't insist that everyone go see it immediately like I do with some five stars. Okay, we thought this movie was very lovely and warm as well, and we gave it four stars accordingly. Four stars in for the Duke. A number one. A number one, indeed. We got the Duke! Ah, midnight run. Next up, we have... Well, actually, we'll finish on Studio 666. Uh, next up, we have uh, a quick shout-out. The Godfather's being re-released this week. A 50th anniversary release of The Godfather. Next week sees Godfather Part 2 re-released. Also, uh, if you've never seen The Godfather, and you've certainly never seen it on the big screen, then now is your chance because it's been restored and it's quite beautiful. Are, are those good films? Would people, would people like I mean, those, do okay. you think? Yeah. Mm, they're okay. Interesting. I've okay, heard they're cool. fine. Yeah. Okay, cool. So three stars then for The Godfather <laughs> and uh, two stars for the inferior sequel, The Godfather Part 2, and four stars for The Godfather Part 3, which is clearly wow. the best of the bunch. <laughs> um, if anyone listening is not, pl- please don't yes. shout at us over that. Yes. We are joking. Don't, don't take me seriously. The first one is still the best. I mean, this is a hill I will die on. The first one is the best. Unless you count the second one, in which case the second one The inferior sequel. Oh, boy. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, Also out this week, it's on digital download, if that's your bag. And it is also on Sky and now TV. It is the latest film from Steven Soderbergh. It is called Kimmy. Unbreakable. Unbreakable. They're alive, damn it. It's a miracle. (laughs) It is uh, is the feature-length adaptation of The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt which stars Ellie Kemper as uh, as Kimmy Schmidt. No, of course it isn't, you fools. It is a a brand new original thriller uh, directed by Steven Soderbergh. Whose and, retirement is going very well. Uh, well, he has unretired, uh, which is which is good because he is in a hell of a fan of form at the moment, I would say, Steven Soderbergh, uh, which makes it even sadder, I would say, that his most recent movies are seem to be a bit buried. I don't know whether this is something that's intentional on his part, that maybe he's thinking that, you know what, he put a lot of time and energy and money into trying to come up with a new theatrical release paradigm for Logan Lucky when he came back in 2017 with Logan Lucky. And it's stiffed. And so I think since then he's gone, you know what, streaming is the way. Streaming is the way, so we made a couple of films for, for Netflix, High Flying Bird and The Laundromat, and the, his last couple of movies, This and No Sudden Move, the excellent No Sudden Move, which came out last year, uh, debuted on HBO Max and over here in this country, Sky, and now TV, which which is sad if you want your Soderbergh uh, in the cinema. Uh, and interesting enough, there's a movie he made in 2020 with Meryl Streep called Let Them All Talk, which is set in a cruise ship, which isn't available in this country at all. At all. Can't get it anywhere. Can't buy it. Can't stream it. Can't rent it. Can't see it. can see it on the plane on the way home. Hurrah. So maybe we'll report back on that uh, if we're not sleeping. Uh, but Kimmy. Kimmy then. So Kimmy is, I think, the... Uh, it, I, I would bracket this in a way with Unsane, the movie he made with Claire Foy mm, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, in that it is uh, an exercise in 
in making a thriller. It's an exercise. It's a character study as well. Uh, it is about a, a young woman called Angela, who's played by Zoe Kravitz, who's having one hell of a moment at the moment. <laughs> uh, at the moment, at the moment. Uh, she's in the Batman, of course, as Catwoman, uh, coming up next week. And she is she works for a tech company who have a Siri slash Alexa-like digital assistant in people's homes called Kimmy. And her job is to basically go through um, complaints or things that go wrong with this device users log problems you know you know if i say something to this kimmy device and it doesn't quite know what i want she will listen back to the audio and then finesse it so that now it knows that now it knows what you want next time when you say that combination of words uh in the course of doing her job she hears what she feels is evidence of a crime being committed uh, a sexual assault and maybe even a murder as well so she begins to investigate and this brings her to the attention of some ne'er-do-wells who may or may not have committed said crime and may or may not want her to shut up. Uh, The process is complicated a little bit because Angela suffers from a number of mental health issues. She is a severe agoraphobe. She cannot leave her apartment. Uh, She suffers from OCD, so she has a a number of issues relating to that as well. And there are lots of other things baked in there uh, also. She has a fake relationship with a couple of neighbors she sees across the way. So you think this might be a rear window type thing, but it it goes in a different direction. I won't spoil it, except to say that it's, I had a grand old time with it. Uh, It's 90 minutes long. It gets in and out. It's a very slow movie to start. I will say that because it's getting you used to to Angela, her mindset. She's a bit spiky, a bit sharp with people, a bit short with people at times as well. And it gets used to her world. And then it opens out into the thriller component, which takes the last half of the, of the movie. And it moves like a train once it, once it starts really, gathering momentum i had a blast with it it's you know it's two two old pros in soderbergh and kep teaming up and zoe kravitz is fantastic in the lead role and uh, it's good stuff uh, so i wrote the review for this one uh i gave us four stars four stars then from empire magazine for kimmy which is available for you to watch right now unbreakable unbreakable indeed <laughs> Uh, and then finally, we're going to finish off with Studio Six 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 on the Sunset Strip. A bit, no, a bit more breakable. Uh, stu- pe- people and things in Studio Six Six Six. Yes. Yeah. This is the story of the Foo Fighters, uh, a band played by really? the Foo Fighters. Um, they are going into the studio under some pressure to record their 10th album. It's their 10th album, so they want it to be great. And also they're under pressure from, you know, studio bosses and so on uh, to do a good job as well. So they they don't want this to do the same old thing. Um, Dave Grohl, who's the lead singer of the band and, and sort of lead creative force behind it, is is determined to push their boundaries, find a new sound, find something new. So he asks them to find a different studio than they've ever used before. And they find a place that has not been used since mysterious goings on in 1993. (laughs) Well, wouldn't you know it, the darn place is possessed and there's like a demon. And before you know it, not only are they in search of a really good drum sound, but they're recording a a demonically inspired 25 minute or more um, single track of like quite a lot of screaming and it's quite you know it's a bit like this podcast it's a bit like this podcast it goes on and on and on and yeah. you never There's know no where it's going to end yeah and you don't know what i'm going to do at any point because no, i, may I be really possessed. don't well i mean that would explain a lot over the last what would it explain helen well anyway um like the food fighters i'm going to you know just try and keep the main guy calm okay. here yeah 
so basically uh, things go on and 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 murderies murdery type things start happening and and there is a just an astonishing amount of blood and guts and gore in this film like they've really gone to town on that i think it is um yeah. it's kind of a slow build up and then like a lot of murder uh, murder 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 and um and i just had a blast i feel like the, the not all of the foos are equally comfortable in front of the camera I think that's not unfair I, to say. I, I, I like them all. I like them I like all. Them all they, too, they've got but a, a ramshackle charm. Yeah, but I think what I think what the film genuinely does very well is it sort of picks the foo who can do the thing that needs to be done in that moment. It, it, it's playing very much to their strengths. It's giving the people who do a good side side eye a side eye shot, and it's giving the people who do a good scared face a scared face shot. Do you know what I mean? There's yeah. a sort of a Pat a, Smear does an amazing shriek. He really he does. does he, yeah, he, he does a kind of. Kind of thing. God help the people who are next door to us, by the way. But yeah, I, I, I mean, I think they're super charming on screen together. Obviously, there's yeah. easy chemistry between all of them, obviously. Um, and then, you know, horrific things happen, obviously. Yeah. So I just, yeah, I had a blast. I, 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 I'm, I'm biased, obviously. But I had, a, I had a bit of a blast with it as well. And I have to say, that surprised me. I have, to, you- I have to say that surprised me because I was expecting this to be awful beyond belief. <laughs> Genuinely. And, you know, I I said this to Dave Grohl when I interviewed him for the magazine. I was like, whenever you were trying to recruit people for this, did they believe you were making a real film? Because you say Foo Fighters horror comedy and we're making a movie. Yeah. And people are going to go, you're just goofing around. And the weird thing about this movie is it's directed by BJ McDonald, who uh, uh, has directed lots of videos for Slayer and stuff like that, which I think is one of the things that got him the gig. He has a, he's a big horror film buff and a, he's directed horror films in the past as well, including one of the Hatchet series. Um, so that Hatchet job got him this job. Hey. Uh, I thought it was going to be complete and utter goof. I thought it was going to be very knowing, and it is knowing, mm. obviously, uh, but I thought it was going to be a bit like Hard Day's Night or Help, only with buckets of blood. And it's not that. It's very interesting. It's not that. It's much straighter than I thought it was going mm. to be. It's trying to be much more of a straight-on horror film. Yeah, it's, than a, I, it's a proper horror movie. Yeah, than I thought it was going to be. The comedy elements come in later on because of the, the manner of deaths and just frankly the insane shit that's going on down down on screen. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's very gory. There's one kill. I think it's a bit of an all-timer, uh, if, 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 if I'm honest. I'm not going to say what it is, uh, but it is. it will live long in the memory. Uh, and yeah, I think Dave Grohl is a very, very charming presence. He can he can hold he can hold the camera. The dude yeah, knows what he's doing. He, he knows what he's doing. So it's uh it's yeah it's a lot of fun. I had, a, I had a good time with it. I think it's maybe a little bit too long. Yeah, it's one hour forty seven minutes. It absolutely needs to be a tight ninety. If it had been a tight ninety, I feel like it, that'd be an extra star right there. Yeah. Um. And yeah. it feels very much like the Dave Grohl solo show for a while, and then some of the other foos start coming to the fore. Uh, and they rise to prominence. And also, this is a weird thing. And I'm I'm hoping to ask Dave Grohl about this. There is no Foo Fighters music in this movie, which is absolutely wild. Whoa! I mean, there's the, he plays the riffs on the guitar, but he that's plays two riffs on the guitar for less than ten seconds. That's true. Uh, he doesn't sing at any point when it, you know. They're, yeah, it's just like an instrumental track. It's an instrumental spoiler. track. There maybe yeah. it's not the real Foo Fighters, and they are just pretenders. <laughs> no, it's not the Pretenders. Chrissy Hind was nowhere to be seen. 
Is this what we do now? Yes, Endless. yes, this is what we... Okay. In our defence, we're in space, there's low oxygen, and we've barely slept, so, it's, you know... We're very tired. We're, we're very, very tired. Very tired. Yeah, absolutely. And we haven't had breakfast. And we, we haven't, haven't had, had breakfast, breakfast. I've crucially. Got we've got to leave. We've got to be ejected at the cold uh, out of reach of yes. space. Uh, yeah, no Foo Fighters music in the Foo Fighters film, which is which is very interesting. There is a Foo Fighters track at the end from their actual 10th album, which is Medicine at Midnight, which is not the album they're trying to record in this as far as we know. Even though this is the house that they recorded Medicine at Midnight Whoa, in. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Cool. Boom, blam, boom, mind blown. So, 666 stars then for Studio 666. <laughs> I would be worried about giving it that many stars. Uh, yes. That's the only reason that I would hold back from 666 stars. We might stars. trigger the apocalypse. All right. Okay, so we're not going to do that. Instead, three stars then for Studio 666. Maybe there'll be a sequel. Studio 667 is right there, folks. <laughs> it is right there. Anyway, on that note, that is it for this week's Emperor Podcast. It has been an epic one, but hey, it's not every week you record a podcast in space now, is We're it? We're in space. We are in space. Uh, <laughs> join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by... <laughs> I've just forgotten. David Kep. David Kep, uh, the writer of Kimmy and, of course, allegedly writer of Jurassic Park and Carlito's Way and the original Spider-Man and all that jazz. He will be He wrote all me. that jazz? He wrote all that jazz. Yeah. Yeah. He was very fussy about it. You see, this is... Oh, no. <laughs> We've got to stop doing this. It's very tiresome. <laughs> it's very tiresome. What the cell? <laughs> he didn't write oh. the cell, Helen. No, I want to watch The Fall again. Oh. Anyway. <laughs> Do they call it The Autumn over here? Anyway... I don't know what's happening. <laughs> David Kep will be on the show next week. And also Rosalie Chang and Sandra Oh from the new Disney Pixar film, Turning Red. Hooray. Which debuts on Disney Plus next week and not in cinemas. Boo. Boo. Boo, Boo to them. Shame. Shame. Like the Foo Fighters new song. <laughs> Dear God. <laughs> All right, someone in my misery. Uh, okay, uh, it is time to say goodbye to my two colleagues of such lethal cunning. I thought I detected his foul stench when I was brought on board, but I certainly detected it at four in the morning oh, when I woke up this morning to what can only be described as a ripper. It is... <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> it is James Dyer. I don't even know what that means. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'm very, very tired. And if you thought this was shambolic, I will say that I'm going to be doing the new Pilot TV podcast straight from the airport, having seen nothing and prepared not at all. So that's going to be unmissable. <laughs> Good luck with that. I can't, I can't recommend it enough. And it is goodbye from someone who is a part of the Rebel Alliance and a traitor. Take her away. It's Helen O'Hara. Good journey. Bright suns. Great journey. Great journey. Great journey. And it's goodbye from me. I'm not going to do any Star Wars shenanigans. I'm off to get possessed by a demonic entity and slaughter my two podmates. What? This I didn't is sign up way. for this. Oh, wait, that is a Star Wars reference. <laughs> All right. Pearl Jam high five up top. Woo! You've left us hanging, James. It's radio, not broadcast. No one can see this. Come okay. on. Oh, God. Like, you're stretching, to do it without stretching. You there you go. Pearl Jam high five up top. Jeremy has motherfucking spoken. Thanks for listening. <laughs> see you next week. To Boobie Tay, everybody. To Boobie Tay. <laughs> <laughs>